Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And I think my voice is giving away a little bit this morning due to having such fun talks with folks like you or opposing counsel calls, whatever I did yesterday. How are you all doing? Where is everybody coming in from? Hanging out with me. We've got a lot to talk about today, so we might have a shortened hangout period at the top of this episode, but I'm really, really excited to start this Tuesday. We've got a lot of fun stuff. We're going to be doing a substantive episode like we did yesterday, talking about the motions here, the post-trial motions in Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard, because, well, as I said in the tweet that advertised this particular broadcast, this is just the longest lasting post-trial defamation after party we have ever seen. Uh, and it just keeps getting covered. And we've got a couple of bits of coverage from different outlets that kind of treat the question a little bit differently from each other. So we've got that fun aspect, looking at the rhetoric, looking at the way that media reports go out with these things. And then we've got some fun substance. We've actually got four separate motion documents here. We're going to be skimming at least one because, frankly, we don't want to be here for the entirety of the morning. Uh, but there are a lot of interesting things that both Amber Heard's team has said and that Johnny Depp's team has said in response. And those responses from Depp's team came out yesterday. So if you saw us discussing the motions or the supplemental motions on Emily D. Baker's show, or you might have seen some other folks on YouTube talking about them uh, over the weekend, the stuff that we're going to be talking about today is very, very new. doesn't mean that some of my colleagues haven't talked about it on YouTube, of course, uh, but it is very new. We got these uh, motions from Johnny Depp's team yesterday. So we're, we're going over new stuff here. But before we do... How is everybody doing? Let's see if we can pull out some of these here. Good morning from Wiki Wachi. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Good morning. Nova Scotia, Canada. Evening from Singapore. Also, it's my birthday today. Great to hang out with you all. Happy birthday, tiny trifle. Happy birthday. Uh, what else do we got here? Uh, afternoon all. Unknown location, but probably to the east of me based on that. We'll see. We'll see if they follow up there. Uh, working while listening to headlines and hangouts or hangouts and headlines. I'll get that order right uh, on maybe a 90% basis uh, in the future. Uh, let's see here. Legit can't wait for EDB to read the updates. Uh, sure. Absolutely. On C and CW. Everything that we discuss with Emily is always coded. Uh, you know, I, real housewives of C, I don't, I don't know, but she's going to be talking about a lot of that today. I know she was excited uh, on Twitter. Uh, Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard is the hydra of lawsuits, LMAO. Uh, it is, right? People continue to have a high level of interest in this. They had a high level of interest during the trial, of course, but now we are kind of getting into that post-trial situation, potentially appeals, uh, which I don't believe have been filed yet by Heard's team. So we'll see what goes on from there. And yeah, just constant things to discuss because honestly, Amber Heard's team continues to throw interesting and novel uh, theories at the wall. And that's a lot of fun for lawyers. I'm not sure it's a lot of fun for the parties, especially the depth side. Greetings from Lexington, Michigan. Good morning, especially Michiganders. Afternoon from Yorkshire, United Kingdom. Good times. Durham, North Carolina. This is what I expect. Eastern time zone and more east of me. The folks that are west, I can't even believe how early you're getting up for this kind of stuff. Good morning, Hogue and Mrs. Hogue. Co-counsel, I believe, is on uh, somewhere here in the chat. Uh, so she is always super, super helpful. I've already read the response. Ben Chu is beautiful. All right. Well, spoilers. Uh, but yeah, there's a, there's a number of interesting rhetorical flourishes and really has the, the vibe, the feel of, uh, Mr. Chu speaking in those, uh, motions to strike 
uh, where you let uh, you let your passion out a little bit more than maybe he did in the courtroom, especially with the jury present. Uh, we've got Indianapolis, Australia. Moving a little too fast for me to even catch all of these. Uh, happy lunchtime from the UK. Awesome. Good morning from Keswick, Ontario. Cottage country north of Toronto. Also working while listening. Happy face emoji. Hello from Georgia in Colorado. But this is not early for me. I've been up for hours. Wow. That's, that's impressive. You're on a different shift than I am, friend. Uh, but I'm really glad that you have joined us here. Absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, I think uh, I think we're going to get started early, like I said, because we've got a ton of stuff to cover. I'll try to keep my eye on chat as we go along here. Again, trying to nurse my voice a little bit this morning. Of course, co-counsel has already brought me tea, um, so we're going to have a good time. But I might go a little slower than I usually do with my rapid fire readings of these things. Um, so with that said, let's uh, let's get down to business um, as as the Disney classic Mulan uh, might otherwise say. Uh, so here we have CNN's take on this, right? So you see this is published uh, last night, 6, 11 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Not Eastern Standard. Heaven forfend. Johnny Depp's attorneys call Amber Heard's post-trial motions for a mistrial frivolous, which is a very kind of factual headline. Uh, and that makes a lot of sense here. That's the headline that I used on the thumbnail here just to indicate what we were talking about. But you do get at least a little bit of maybe over neutrality for what is a court case that actually has a jury verdict uh, underneath it. Attorneys for jury Johnny Depp have asked a Virginia judge to deny Amber Heard's post-trial motions asking for a mistrial, calling the legal arguments frivolous. Now, this is true. And again, it's technically true, but it's kind of a weird way to describe this, right? Johnny Depp has asked a Virginia judge. Um, yes, but it's not a random Virginia judge. It's a Virginia judge that actually was the judge in this particular trial. It's also the chief judge uh, for this particular court. Uh, so it's not random. He asked his judge and he calls the legal arguments frivolous. Heard and Depp were both found liable for defamation in their lawsuits against each other last month. Uh, again, uh, technically correct, although anybody that's doing an honest reading of what the jury found in this particular case finds that Amber Heard lied about being abused by Johnny Depp. That's the big lie in this particular context. I know, YouTube, just flag me. We'll talk later. Uh, but uh, that's the big lie in this particular context. And then Johnny Depp gets a return volley defamation claim brought against him by essentially having his counsel, according to the jury, describe the lie inaccurately, right? And this is really, really notable because there were three statements on either side uh, that were accused of being defamatory uh, that Amber Heard said effectively by implication that Johnny Depp abused her. That was found to be defamatory. And then two of the statements that Johnny Depp's counsel made against Amber Heard were found to be not defamatory. Those statements included the concept that Amber Heard had engaged in a hoax. The jury fundamentally found that Amber Heard had lied and that it is okay to say that Amber Heard was a part of a hoax. What they found to be libelous was the notion of the details that Adam Waldman gave, uh, that they spilled some wine and roughed the place up a little bit, maybe the order of the police officers and how they came in and when the calls were made. The specifics of the lie, the jury found to be uh, false. And so that's something that could potentially come up in Johnny Depp's defense. Uh, if we can say that it's a hoax, what do the details matter? How does that create damages separate from us being allowed to say that it's a hoax, et cetera? That might come up later on in this process if we do proceed to appeals on this. Uh, but it's entirely different from, you know, these two were just clubbing each other with defamatory statements. Yet CNN's not wrong. 
but they are making a certain feel for what happened here that's going to differ from what we see from Deadline. The jury initially awarded $15 million in damages to debt and only $2 million to herd. And they don't explain any of that reasoning here if you're not familiar with the case, which I think is maybe not great because it kind of implies that the jury was just Johnny Depp fans or that kind of thing. Though, because punitive damages in the state of Virginia are capped at $350,000, the judge reduced Depp's $5 million in punitive damages to that amount. Attorneys for Heard asked the court to declare a mistrial and order a new trial in a motion filed last week. We'll take a look at that, or more specifically, we'll take a look at the table of contents there. Depp's attorney argued in a memo filed Monday that a judge cannot arbitrarily substitute their judgment for that of the jury. Yes, they did argue that. That's also the fact of the system, uh, right? CNN's not wrong here. I have no issue with what CNN has to say. Uh, but yes, they argued that, and that's not going to be actually argued against by anyone. Uh, a judge cannot arbitrarily substitute their judgment for that of the jury. And yet there are reasons that a jury can get things so wildly wrong uh, that it demands that the court step in and give redress. Uh, did that happen here? I don't think so. And I think that they are throwing things at the wall. We will see. We'll discuss. Uh, but that's that's what CNN kind of describes as having happened here. They put some quotes in, some of which we're going to look at. Uh, but overall, again, we, we act on the, the assumption in headlines that a lot of people are going to see this on Twitter. They might read a couple of these paragraphs here up until like the first ad break. Uh, and then that's that's the big message that you want to put out if you're an outlet. And uh, it's neutral here in CNN. I have to give credit for that. But it's neutral to the point of maybe being overly so when you do have a jury verdict on the one hand and you're describing things like, well, they were both found liable. And it's true, but maybe not exactly what happened, which Deadline says on their side of things. We got the Deadline article earlier than CNN's. Johnny Depp rejects Amber Heard's frivolous aim to toss trial verdict is too little too late. Pirate star claims Aquaman star knew about juror discrepancy. And we'll be talking about the juror pretty extensively here because that's what's covered in the supplemental memo that Johnny Depp accuses Amber Heard's team of filing uh, way too late. And, and we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the, the juror issue, which we also talked about on Emily's show, if you want to watch Friday Night Live uh, from last week. Deadline, just a few days after Amber Heard filed new paperwork to have Johnny Depp's defamation trial winning verdict tossed out and a new trial set, the current Jeff Beck sideman has responded. Unsurprisingly, the lengthy response from Team Depp is to maintain the multi-million dollar decision, insisting that the Virginia court reject Ms. Heard's baseless contention over his more than $10 million damages award and everything else, which is an interesting bit of journalism, everything else true, I guess. Uh, asserting that Heard's Elaine Bredehoff-led defense and counterclaim crew filed their post-trial motions well after the July 1st deadline, Depp's team today also seek to make mincemeat of the July 8th reiterated allegations. Now, Deadline's operating a little bit differently than CNN Entertainment was. Deadline, as an entertainment-focused outlet here, assumes that you kind of know what happened. They, they reference in one sentence the Team Depp won a big, a big verdict here. They don't make that kind of neutral statement in the paragraph. Uh, and then they use terms like mincemeat. Deadline uh, has good news. They break a lot of news. They report it a little bit like a tabloid, if you aren't familiar with this outlet. Uh, and so they, they do things like that. They refer to Johnny Depp as the current uh, like Jeff Beck sideman uh, and things like that. But you can see the difference in approach. Right after the $10 million plus verdict came down on June 1st, overwhelmingly for an absent debt, which I think is accurate in all honesty. In Judge Penny Ascarade's Fairfax, Virginia courtroom, Heard's lawyers made it apparent an appeal was in the offing. At first, it looked like that desire might have hit a dead end when Judge Ascarade insisted 
at a June 24th final judgment hearing that Heard has to put up an $8.35 million bond before any appeal can even consider moving forward. The case of the mistaken juror, where a 52-year-old man seemed to show up in place of the 77-year-old man who was actually summoned, seemed to provide a battering ram through that bond wall, at least insofar as it threw a spiky spanner into the judicial works. Uh, and that's kind of uh, a non sequitur in the middle of this article, but it is the way that they write about these things. And I did want to highlight that as opposed to CNN, Deadline seems to have changed even its own tune a little bit from when it was reporting on the case initially with that jury verdict at their back. Clearly, Deadline is reporting on the premise that Johnny Depp is effectively vindicated and is, is using these paragraphs uh, in that manner where CNN is taking a more hands-off approach. Your mileage may vary on which you think is more appropriate in this particular context. We don't have a final non-appealable court decision here. That's why we're talking about post-trial motions. That's why we're talking about appeals as a process. But you can see even now these journalistic outlets kind of separating out um, from what they're willing to say about this. And it will be interesting to see if CNN winds up taking on a slightly different tone if the final non-appealable verdict, whenever this kind of exhausts the entire process, winds up coming down in Johnny Depp's favor. Uh, along with seeking an appeal or mistrial in the Virginia case, Heard is now at the center of legal action from New York Marine and General Insurance Company. This we talked about in yesterday's video. I think actually as a part of reading through these motions, especially Johnny Depp's response, um, I had a little bit more uh, understanding of, of what might win the day for that insurance company, remembering that basically what the insurance company is arguing in that case, and please do check out that earlier video, is that you don't get insured for willful misconduct, uh, that what we insure against has to be in some way accidental, even though what we cover is expressly inclusive of defamatory statements, which by their very nature are at least willfully done. Uh, you make the statement, nobody you know, squeezed your cheeks together and made words come out like some kind of you know, plushy doll. So you said those things, you reported them, you wrote that op-ed, um, but you can still have kind of an accidental defamatory impact. And I said yesterday, well, they went and they tried to go through a lawyer to make sure it wasn't defamation. That kind of goes in their favor, these kinds of things. But we'll talk about how in particular, Having to show defamation by implication, I think, really rises to the level of giving the insurance company a hook to hang their hat on. Um, so that's the way these two outlets have reported this thing. And I wanted to point that out before we kind of get into the nitty gritty and do more of the substance, because it is very interesting to me. It continues to be interesting to see how this court case that so many of us watched either every minute, virtually every minute, or just intensively over the period of six, seven, eight weeks that it went on can be thought of and reported so differently in these opening paragraphs, in their headlines, in the way these things are done. Uh, so I find that to be very, very interesting as somebody that follows media and follows these questions a lot. That's the media side of things. That's the headlines, but the headlines, of course, have substance behind them. And so I thought we should take a look at that because it is also fun. We can give you a little bit more zoom on that. We don't need to kill your eyes. Um, so this is filed July 1st, uh, and this is Team Heard's motion for post-trial, effectively asking for a mistrial. Uh, and they have a big, long document here. We're not going to go through it all. I do think a lot of folks uh, in my neck of the woods on YouTube have talked about this motion extensively. So I just want to go through the table of contents just to discuss a little bit. So their, their basic summary of arguments is going to be their introduction, and then they actually go through all these various sections. So the first 
the damages awarded by the jury are unsupported by the evidence in the law. So the jury at the end of this trial says, uh, you were damaged. We're going to give you compensatory damages of $10 million. And we're going to award you $5 million of punishment, of punitive damages. Uh, and here, basically, they just say all of that is unsupported, which I think is really an interesting tack to take, especially as your first argument, because we can all remember sitting there and listening to a bunch of experts talk about how much money Johnny Depp lost, uh, right? And you didn't have to believe them, but it isn't the lawyer's job and it isn't the court's job to determine the credibility of the witnesses that are presented. And Johnny Depp's team didn't just present people that said $10 million. They presented people that said $40 million. They presented people that said $40 million and emotional distress. And they presented a whole host of folks that said, yeah, we think that he would have had more of these studio gigs and all these other kinds of things. We have data analytics guy. We have all the other people that I commented on extensively over the course of the many, many weeks of the trial that did talk about this. So when you go and you say no evidence, that is strong. It's, it's easily refuted, right? You don't believe the evidence, but there is no question that Johnny Depp's team presented evidence on this. And so why would you go out with a flatly false accusation at the top of your post-trial motions? I don't know. I can't speak to this. I can't get in Elaine Bredehoff's mind. I can't answer that question that I rhetorically just posed. But generally speaking, and this isn't just for litigation, right? I've said in a number of places, I've said here, I'm not a litigator. I'm a contract writer. I negotiate for a living. I'm a lawyer, but I don't go and step into court. I don't do these motions. And it's worth noting that these motions are important, just like every other motion that happened before everything that we saw in public. This is a lot of the place where lawyers make their money, where their bread is buttered. Uh, and so you see these large documents that are kind of fired at each other and the judge has to sort out. But when you're making an argument of any kind, if you're going to make kind of throw things at the wall and see what sticks arguments like there's no evidence at all, you might want to put that not at the top of your list, because just like those headlines, judges are smart people. This is their job. They're going to read all this stuff. But focus, intent is still going to have that primacy and recency concept right? It's still going to have as a human being, this is the first thing you said to me, really, I'm going to read through this document. And the very first thing you say to me is there was no evidence presented as to the compensatory damages. Um, no, that's wrong. And then if you're the reader, you're put on the back foot, right? You're like, okay, this is the document I'm going to read now. It's 53 pages long. And we're starting with this. Fantastic. This is wonderful. And if you put the reader on that back foot, chances are they're going to read everything else with that same lens. And if it continues to be somewhat specious, somewhat frivolous, we saw Johnny Depp's team will call it, you've potentially got a problem. The jury's compensatory and putative damages awards were excessive as a matter of law. Mr. Depp is not entitled to damages for any conduct prior to the op-ed. Mr. Depp is not entitled to damages for alternative causes, including the Sun publication, the ensuring litigation brought by Mr. Depp, the UK trial and surrounding publicity, and the UK judgment. It's all true, uh, but Virginia case law supports setting aside damage judgments that are excessive. Also probably true. Again, shocking the conscience as a concept. People ask me all the time when I'm reading through terms and conditions or otherwise talking in virtual legality here, well, doesn't public policy come in? Doesn't the law subsume whatever that bad terms of service item might be? And the answer is it can, um, but you're, you're throwing yourself at the equitable mercy of the court. And the court can say, this is void for public policy. It shocks our conscience. If 
the jury had somehow had a $50 million case brought against it, which is actually 50 million or more, and said, you are correct. Amber Heard owes Johnny Depp 2.6 billion. Then the court would say, um, what? <laughs> and especially if they put that in the compensatory damages step, the court could then step in. Here, where the party asked for 50 million, presents evidence for 40 million, shows that there were damages done uh, that were done by actual malice, at least according to this jury. That, and you've got punitive damages that are shortened by statute to $350,000. I don't actually know what we're talking about here. And this is the first section. This is 20 pages of the judge's time. It's a big deal. This is not their strongest argument. I will talk about their strongest argument when we get to that like section summary, uh, but this is not their strongest argument. And they lead off with it in a way that I find to be potentially rhetorically damaging uh, to their cause here. Section two, the verdicts on the complaint and counterclaim are inconsistent and therefore should be set aside. Now, remember, as I just talked about in this particular context, there is a finding for Amber Heard and there's a finding for Johnny Depp. And if you were also watched with us either in Legal Bites or Nate's stream or wherever else you might've watched this particular trial with us, there was a lot of commentary in the middle of that trial that said they can't both win. And I would always sit there and I would always respond and say, sure, they can. Now, I didn't come up with this particular locution of uh, it is a hoax, Amber Heard lied, and the details of the second statement are wrong. But there were a number of ways that it could have happened where they both lied. Amber Heard was never abused, but that she didn't commit a hoax, that this isn't intentional, that you give her some benefit of the doubt that says she's just wrong in her memories or what have you. And it isn't the kind of thing that you can actually call a formalized hoax. That kind of thing is possible, the way that these two specific sets of suits were organized. And we talked about that at length during those streams. In this particular case, however, it's even more clear that the jury can come up with this kind of thought process. And we sussed it out as we went over it because we were all surprised by this, the win on the second statement for Amber Heard. And you say, how can that be? And you realize that the statement that is the one that the jury found to be defamatory was the one with all the details. And details are the kinds of things that you can get wrong. So if you're looking for falsehood, you can get falsehood in details, even if the overall concept is correct. Just like you can have falsehood by implication from reading between the lines of a number of statements that are correct, which is also a fight here in these motions. So this is flatly wrong. They are not inconsistent. They are a little bit weird. They might not be what you would expect a jury to come up with, but we charge those seven Virginians locked in a room with determining the facts. And they clearly determined that Amber Heard lied about being abused by Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp was defamed by the implication of that lie. And yet his counsel went and described the lie inaccurately. Now, you and I can potentially argue whether or not describing the lie that we believe exists inaccurately actually rises to the level of defamation. Uh, but that's within the jury's ambit to determine. And these two things are consistent, at least in terms of the law, right? You, you don't have to agree with the jury. Nobody has to agree with the jury, uh, but they are possible. When you see this argument, it is supposed to be only used when it is impossible. The, the defendant both murdered and didn't murder that person. That's not possible that this kind of thing can't happen in both ways and the verdicts don't work together. That's not possible. Here, they're very much possible. So you've started now, you've used 22 pages, you've used two of your big Roman numerals, which, you know, you got to conserve those. Those are your big Roman numerals. You don't want to just throw them about willy-nilly. You've used two of them and you've hit me with arguments that I'm not finding very interesting. Now, the third argument I find interesting. 
The First Amendment bars recovery for defamation by implication when the statements at issue are true on their face and involve a public figure or matters of public concern. Now, this is interesting because as you might have seen when I started looking at this trial, I said, well, those statements are pretty true. The statements at issue that Amber Heard says, I became a representative of domestic abuse survivors. I got to see firsthand how the institutions of the world treat uh, uh, people, uh, famous people accused of abuse, something along those lines. I apologize for the paraphrase. I don't have them right in front of me this second. Um, and the headline, of course, to the article. And I said, well, if someone went out there and does the restraining order, then to some extent they did become a representative of domestic abuse, regardless of whether the underlying action that they brought is true that they did get to see exactly how people reacted to that accusation against Johnny Depp, again, regardless of whether the underlying accusation is true. Now, I think the sexual abuse concept in the headline is much more problematic for her. But overall, you can make the case that the statements independently are true and that Johnny Depp wins this case because you read them all together in context, especially with the two years ago, I became that representative. And you say, this is implying that Johnny Depp abused me. And then with the headlines, actually abused me. And that's a big, big problem for her. But remember that for a public figure under federal law, regardless really of what the state statutes say, the federal law, the way the First Amendment has been interpreted in the U.S. Constitution, incorporated against the states through the 14th Amendment, you have to show actual malice of someone that is making a statement about a public figure. And apparently, you can go through this, and we'll look at what Depp's team responds to this. Virginia hasn't actually made a really strong showing in court about whether or not you can rise to an actual malice standard reading between the lines. And we can see how it could be possible that you can't, right? Reading between the lines already feels a little bit uh, on the line for legal liability because the statements that are otherwise made are at least ostensibly true or true-ish. Your mileage may vary. And then if we're going to read between the lines, can you actually get to the level of actual malice? Now, I do think that you can. Uh, you have to show intentionality in what you intended to imply. The jury finds that is, in fact, the case. And that's why I think the insurance case might be a little bit better for the insurance company than I intimated yesterday, because this is a specialized argument about implication and not just false statements on their face. So what the insurance company is saying is if you have to show intentionality in that implication, then that intentionality kills our insurance obligation. And that's why we're trying to get out of it. And I think that might actually find purchase to use a word that, of course, Amber Heard used on the stand Too much discussion from my colleagues. So this to me is interesting, though, because whenever you have a situation where a state hasn't determined fully whether or not this is, in fact, the case, you can get something that rises to the level of appeals discussing it. You can get something that rises to the level of the Supreme Court, of the state discussing it, and potentially, God help us all, the Supreme Court deciding it if there is a split in the circuits, the jurisdictions under their purview. It could happen. It could happen. Now, this is state interpretation of their own constitution and laws, so it's unlikely, but who knows? This is the kind of argument that I think actually can work for the Amber Herds of the world, because it does potentially present a novel question with constitutional implications. They love these constitutional arguments, right? The, uh, the First Amendment bars recovery for defamation by implication when the statements at issue are true on their face and involve a public figure of matters of public concern. The First Amendment, not the Virginia statute, not the Virginia constitution, First Amendment as incorporated against the state of Virginia.
Section four, the jury's finding of defamation by implication with respect to the op-ed headline statement is contrary to the law and unsupported by the facts. So we're talking about the headline. Again, this is a failure of an argument just based on its own heading here because the jury gets to determine what those facts are. And certainly you read in context as the jury instruction in Virginia law says the headline with the other two statements uh, and the article as a whole, you can easily have that two years ago concept applied to the headline and have that headline applied to Johnny Depp. Uh, they say there's no support for the conclusion that Ms. Heard initially made or published the headline. Uh, that is true. The newspaper added the headline and Ms. Heard played no role in the authoring or publication of the headline statement. This is accurate that Johnny Depp's team didn't appear to present any evidence that Amber Heard wrote the headline, uh, but then that Ms. Heard's tweet linking the newspaper article does not constitute republication with everything we heard from Virginia law. With the fact that Judge A actually allowed the jury to hear the question means that this is going to be a failure in front of her, certainly, even though the republication question is an interesting one. The jury is allowed to determine that that did in fact take place. Uh, and so this is a, a weak argument, but not nearly as bad as the first couple that we looked at. Mr. Depp did not present evidence of actual malice. This is a failure of an argument as well, because actual malice standard, that knowing falsity is evident either direction for either Amber Heard or Johnny Depp. Why? Because one of them is lying about whether he abused her or not. So if she is lying about it, she has intentionality of spreading that lie. Uh, and so that is a gimme that we talked about when we analyzed the case. If you find that Amber Heard was perpetrating a hoax. And since the jury says saying Amber Heard was perpetrating a hoax is not defamatory, then you've got actual malice. And she knows whether or not she was abused at the hands of Johnny Depp. Mr. Depp did not present sufficient evidence to support a finding of defamation by innuendo. <clears throat> no evidence surrounding the op-ed's publication would reasonably cause a reader to believe the title of the online edition is about Mr. Depp. No evidence established contemporaneous facts surrounding the publication of the op-ed that would reasonably cause a reader to understand any of the statements as conveying a defamatory implication about Mr. Depp. And Mr. Depp cannot recover for statements Ms. Heard made during judicial proceedings, and he failed to prove that any statement in the op-ed implies he abused Ms. Heard. Again, going to the heart of what the jury determined. The jury clearly determined that they did imply statements that uh, the op-ed that he abused Ms. Heard. They didn't use judicial statements as far as I can remember. I don't think they used the temporary restraining order or the concepts in that hearing directly in the case. Uh, and in terms of whether or not one can read this innuendo, this implication into these, uh, these op-ed materials, we already know the judge allowed it to go to the jury because she found a sufficient set of evidence that a reasonable jury could determine that. So this is effectively relitigating what would have been the pretrial concepts of what this case can even be based on nothing. Johnny Depp's team did in fact offer evidence to all of these things, especially the two years ago concept that is in the op-ed and is to be read in context with the other statements. And then finally, the argument that's getting everybody's attention online and otherwise the court should conduct an investigation of juror number 15 and whether jury service was proper and due process was protected. So this is an oddball argument. You don't see this very often in any of these cases. So let's actually take a look at this one. The court should investigate whether juror number 15 properly served on the jury. On the juror panel list sent to counsel before voir dire, the court noted that the individual who would later be designated juror 15 had a birth year of 1945. Juror 15, however, was clearly born later than 1945. Note that clearly. It's going to come back at him. Publicly available information demonstrates that he appears to have born in 1970. 
This discrepancy raises the question whether juror 15 actually received a summons for jury duty and was properly vetted by the court to serve on the jury. Virginia Code Section 8.01-353.1 provides that <clears throat> at the time of assembly for the purpose of juror selection, the identity of each member of the jury veneer shall be verified as provided in this section. Prior to being selected from the jury veneer, that's the pool to you and I, a potential juror shall verify his identity by presenting to the person taking jury attendance any of the following forms of identification. His Commonwealth of Virginia voter registration card, his social security card, his valid Virginia's driver license, or any other identification card issued by a government agency of the Commonwealth, one of its political subdivisions, or the United States, or any valid employee identification card containing a photograph of the juror and issued by an employer of the juror in the ordinary course of the employer's business. If the juror is unable to present one of these forms of identification, he shall sign a statement affirming under penalty of perjury that he is the named juror. So you get called into the pool and you're supposed to provide, like you're at the airport, your driver's license, or otherwise you have to sign what amounts to an affidavit saying, yes, I promise that this is me. Thus, the court's clerk's office had a statutory obligation to verify the identity of juror 15. So here's the other problem when you look at these motions that the Amber Heard team presents and you look at the interviews that the Amber Heard team has gone on. They have a tendency to throw everybody under the bus. This particular argument is very strongly throwing both the court under the bus for failing in whatever their review responsibilities are, and then implying strongly that this juror number 15 is acting untoward in some capacity. But because juror 15 was not born in 1945, it appears his identity could not have been verified through any of the means of identification the code provides. Couldn't have put forth anything that had a birth date, although I'm not positive that everything here would have a birth date on it. An employee identification card, for instance, is that going to have a birth date on it? I don't know. So this already has you saying, okay, if I'm thinking about the logic that they're presenting in this motion, does that make sense? There's a bunch of pieces of evidence here that wouldn't necessarily have a birth date. So does that mean that they couldn't have used any of the means of identification? That's wrong. It's flatly wrong, factually. Don't hit the court with factually wrong assertions. You have potentially a point to raise here. Don't screw it up by just making broad misstatements. And it also raises questions about whether and how juror 15 could have signed a statement affirming under penalty of perjury that he was named juror if he was 25 years younger than the person the court recognizes juror 15. And here you see the fault in the argument, right? If we look at this and say at least some of these things don't have a birth date on it, maybe a government agency and identification card doesn't have a birth date on it, probably does. But we already talked about the employer identification card, potentially other ways of showing your identification, yet you don't even rise to the level of a statement. So if we have a mistake and you use one of those cards that doesn't potentially have a birth date on it, then... Did the court fail? No. Did the juror fail? Not necessarily. And yet you now get to the right level of having an affidavit where you have to confirm that you're the named juror. We don't know if that has a birth date on it. If these names are the same, and we'll talk about why that is likely the case when we get to their supplemental memorandum, then you can have an innocent mistake. And who is actually prejudiced by that? Although the Virginia Supreme Court has previously construed Virginia Code 801-353, requiring the jury panel to be made available at least 48 hours before trial, to be directory rather than mandatory, it is observed that adherence to the provisions of that code is required to the extent necessary to ensure due process. It therefore follows that adherence to that section of the code is necessary to ensure due process, even if it is viewed as a directory rather than mandatory statute. Now, the footnote does note, rightly, 
Ms. Hurd recognizes that the code also states that any error in the information shown on the jury panel shall not be grounds for a mistrial or assignable as error on appeal. Seems like a big problem for you if you're bringing this particular claim. And the parties in the case shall be responsible for verifying the accuracy of such information. But the apparent error in the jury information form relating to Juror 15 is not the basis for Ms. Hurd's concerns. It is the potential that Juror 15 was not, in fact, the same individual that the court assigned as Juror 15 and or was not verified by the court clerk's office as required by the code. This would warrant setting aside the verdict and ordering a new trial. Would it? Now, one of the things you have to establish here is that you are unfairly prejudiced, right? So they're bringing up, again, a constitutional concept that we are entitled to due process of law. Again, especially through the United States 14th Amendment as applied to the states. And that's a good thing to have, right? We all should be afforded due process. The, the rules should be followed. If you are going to hold us liable for millions of dollars, if you're going to throw us in a cage, whatever else it might be. So that's a good thing. But you have to establish that this process wasn't due. And the problem that they have, of course, is that this juror was presented. They had this material before the actual pool was looked at. And then they went through a process called voir dire, where the court and the parties examine each individual for biases, for prejudice, for things that will harm the actual pursuance of justice in the court of law. And both parties signed off on this individual, regardless of the difference in the summons. So if there is a difference, if this is factually correct, and certainly the court will look at it, certainly Depp's team will look at it, then the primary issue here is that, well, so what? This person was qualified in voir dire. This person is not accused of doing anything untoward as a member of the jury. So what are you accusing them of? Well, we get to that in the next paragraph a little bit. <clears throat> to the extent that the individual who served as juror 15 was not, in fact, the same individual in the pool, or that the court clerk's office did not verify his identity, Ms. Hurd's due process was compromised. The Virginia Code does not contemplate jury service by someone not in the pool, and for good reason. She doesn't elaborate on what that reason is, although there is good reason to have specific summons for ju jury pools to ensure that justice and a jury of your peers is the ones deciding your case. In any case, but especially a high-profile case such as this one, it is critical to ensure no person who is not in the pool is able to serve on the jury whether by inadvertence or intention. Intention. Are you implying that this person snuck on the Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard jury? Is that is that what you're implying here? Sounds like it. Here, the facts show juror 15 was decades younger than the individual on the jury panel list. Fact that you probably could have noticed in the room. Raising questions as to whether they were the same or different people. Ms. Heard therefore requests that the court investigate whether juror 15 was properly part of the pool and whether prior to jury service, juror 15 verified his information in the manner prescribed. Ms. Heard further requests that court to take appropriate action based upon the results of the investigation, including, if appropriate, ordering a new trial. That's a big deal, obviously, calling for a mistrial here and not just reasons for appeal. And that's why it's been focused on by so many, both here on YouTube and in the journalistic press entirely. So that's their overall motion. We only read the last one because that's where a lot of people have found their interest. But you can see, starts out with a couple of bad arguments, kind of goes with a little bit of a stronger argument here with, hey, what about implication in public figures in Virginia? Don't have a great answer to that. Uh, and even Johnny Depp's response, you'll see, isn't necessarily like a slam dunk against it. Um, and then another cover of weak arguments. And then, by the way, that juror wasn't the person that was summoned. Um, and so let's take a stop there uh, really briefly. We've got some super chats to hit here, and I want to hit them. 
uh, because y'all are generous in helping support the channel, and I really, really appreciate it. Um, let's take a look at Britt Cormier here. At the end of any Amber Heard versus Johnny Depp case coverage, I want people to use the line, who won? Who's next? In the style of the old epic rat battles of history outros. Seems appropriate to me. Who won? We did. Because we're learning about the judicial process and how our system of government works. Who lost? Well, probably them, the parties. They've spent a lot of money on lawyers, and I'm not sure that that's going to uh, go away when this continues on for the next few years. Um, so who's next? Uh, we'll see. I, I'm not going to get in the business of covering a lot of these trials, uh, I don't think. Uh, but it is fascinating while I do so, definitely. Adida, work is crazy, so signing up for the replay crew, fantastic. Replays, just as good as live. We love having you either way. Just popping in to congratulate you on reaching stadium goals of subs. Cake and champagne emojis. Also, fanciful motions and footnote follies. Smiley face. That's why I'm here, even on replay. Yeah, I have fun with the titles, especially the hangouts and headlines, uh, because they don't matter nearly as much as trying to get all of the words right um, in the virtual legalities proper. So thank you so much. Really appreciate it. As I said yesterday, we had decorations up in the background. We did hit the subscriber goal that was my pie-in-the-sky goal when I started this channel, which was having more subscribers than can fit in Michigan Stadium, at least legally. Um, and so we did that yesterday, which was uh, a big deal. Um, you know, I don't um, I, I don't get excited about these things because I, I try to roll with them because YouTube can add subscribers. It can take away. It can give you good context uh, for your videos. It can give you bad ones and it can suppress them. Uh, and so I just try to roll with what I'm proud of and put that stuff out there. But, you know, hitting those kinds of milestones um, is important. It's, it's a big deal. And uh, thank you so much for the congratulations. I really appreciate it. Aviation Fanatic, what are your initial gut thoughts on how Judge A is going to respond to Amber Heard's motions? Uh, negatively. I personally feel like it's a waste of the court's time. Well, what's interesting about this process, right, is you're going to go argue these points to the person that has already judged on them, right? Judge A had to look at basically all of this stuff before the trial was even sat, before the jury even came in, and now they're being asked to, to look at it again uh, and with no other kind of argument. Um, and so we saw them argue the motions to strike. We saw how the judge reacted there. These mostly seem to be specious. They mostly seem to fit within that branding of frivolousness that Ben Shu and Johnny Depp's legal team put on it. But you never know. There are at least a couple of these arguments that are interesting. The juror argument's interesting because, uh, what? <laughs> that, I haven't seen that before. I haven't heard of that kind of thing before. And I don't think it prejudices uh, the case. But you have to be really careful with due process. Um, and so the question becomes, you know, is the Virginia statute... Uh, is that enough of due process? Do the fact that the people get to uh, voir dire these prospective jurors enough due process? I would argue that it is, that what Virginia puts on its statutory code for his is how a directory will be given to you uh, is not necessarily a part of making sure you have due process. And certainly the fact that they did give that information and that you know you didn't talk about it at that point in time is going to be something uh, that Johnny Tepp's team argues against pretty strongly. Uh, so I, I think it's a, largely a waste of time. I think that's accurate, uh, but it is a part of the process that you have to go through. I don't necessarily blame Hurd's team for having post-trial motions, of course, or for setting up these particular points of argument, especially for appeals. Uh, but yeah, don't, don't do all the junk. Don't say there's no evidence presented on damages, for God's sakes. Obviously there was. Uh, and worse, we've talked about it before, it's freaking defamation per se, which means they don't have to prove damages. Uh, and so we get into those arguments as well. Britt Cormier says, if it was that obvious, why did Amber Heard's team not bring this up at any time up to and including the jury instructions? They admit it is obvious. They use the word clearly. They'll say it's obvious again. 
and that they took no actions to correct. Well, if we gave them the benefit of the doubt, which I don't think they necessarily deserve in this context, but if we did, you could say they just missed it, that they didn't notice that. And after they lost, you take a fine-tooth comb to things that you could potentially argue against. That's kind of the benefit of the doubt approach. Look, we don't expect somebody to be 30 years out of space with what the person should have been that was called to this particular pool. Uh, and so we didn't even think about it when we were looking at these particular issues. And the date just kind of sits in the top corner when we're examining these things. Now, I think that's enormously unlikely. This is a case that had the nation's interest. It was for millions and millions of dollars. You make damn sure you know who is in that pool and what you can know about them. You've seen the TV shows about jury selection. That's not always the way things go, but it very well can be when you've got two celebrities arguing over millions and millions of dollars. I, and so I don't think that's incredibly likely, but that could be the benefit of the doubt explanation, right? We didn't notice it. We looked at it again and said, oh my God, and now we're bringing it to the court's attention. Does that strain credibility? I think it does, but your mileage may vary and a reasonable person could potentially uh, argue that. I think that they knew it at some point, maybe not during voir dire, uh, but pretty early on and said, huh, well, maybe we can use that on appeal or in these post-motion uh, verdicts. Now, of course, they didn't expect to lose necessarily, uh, but here we are. Um, and I think that's the super chats here. Uh, anybody else uh, raise comments? Uh, we're going to go on to their supplemental memo. We're going to look at Johnny Depp's team's response uh, and as well as this, the response to that supplemental memo, uh, which I think is, uh, uh, is going to be even more interesting than some of the stuff we've already seen here. Uh, we've got already uh, predictions. Ascardi's dismissal of this nonsense will be chilling and terse. Uh, I don't know if it'll be chilling. I do think terse uh, is a good bet. Uh, there, there, there could be the equivalent of a judicial motion that says uh, no um, in, in large parts. Uh, and uh, thanks. Uh, people thanking for 1.5 speed. I was I always love that. Catch up. Absolutely. Run me at whatever speed you can stand uh, on these kinds of things. I try to speak in clear enunciation. So I can get up to 1.75. I'd be comfortable. I know some people listen to me at 2x. I can't understand what even I'm saying uh, at 2x, but more power to you. Um, so let's let's move on to the next document as I get a little bit more tea this morning. So about a week after Heard's team files that particular motion uh, for mistrial, motion to appeal, the post-trial motions document, they file a supplement, particularly about the juror. Uh, defendant and counterclaim plaintiff Amber Laura Heard hereby supplements Section 7 of her post-trial motion. Virginia law provides that only those jurors whose names appear in the list provided for under the code shall be used for the trial of cases, civil and criminal, to be tried during the term. Fairfax County explains that these potential jurors are selected from the list of registered voters in Fairfax County. Every year, citizens' names are randomly selected by the Virginia Supreme Court from the list of registered voters for the Fairfax area. Uh, in this case, the jury panel list included an individual named, call him Bob. Right. These names are all redacted with a date of birth in 1945 residing in a city in Virginia. This means that the individual would have been 77 years old at the time of the trial. The attached voter registration information lists two individuals with the last name of whatever this person's last name is residing in presumably the city they just referenced with a date of birth of 1945. And that same person listed on the jury panel list and a person listed at that same address with what we can only presume is the same name born in 1970. Both of these individuals live at that same address. The individual who appeared for jury duty with this name was obviously the younger one. Obviously. It was obviously the younger one. I mean, it was either obvious or it wasn't. Are you saying that you just skipped all of your voir dire obligations and it was obvious from the get-go? It's not necessarily a great look for you. 
Thus, the 52-year-old <clears throat> man sitting on the jury for six weeks was never summoned for jury duty on April 11th and did not appear in the list as required under the code. So they're making this assertion. Now, they're making this assertion a little bit flatly insofar as they say it's obviously the younger one. So it's, you know, 25 years difference. That's a substantial amount of time. I would like to think that I could identify a 77-year-old uh, versus a 52-year-old. But uh, this is just a, a raw assertion on this particular point. So is this actually the younger one? We'd have to establish that, of course. As the court no doubt agrees, uh-oh, it is deeply troubling for an individual not summoned for jury duty, nonetheless to appear for jury duty and to serve on a jury, especially in a case such as this. So I'm not sure on this, right? In the facts that you have discovered uh, in looking at this question, you've indicated that this jury summons was sent to the address in which this person lived and to the person that shares this person's name, right? And I don't know if that's junior, senior. I don't know if it's just a weird sitcom style approach to having people with the same name live in the, live together uh, and they're putting together a show. Uh, but whatever reason you might otherwise have, deeply troubling is not how I would describe someone saying, oh, that's my name. I'm being called for jury duty, showing up for jury duty and giving seven or eight weeks of their lives to actually participate in the jury. Uh, whether it's Depp v. Heard or whether it's a, your local insurance defense, whatever it might be, that's not usually how people decide to spend their time. So is it deeply troubling? If you were to say someone crafted a jury summons and put this fraud on the court in order to get onto the jury because they're deeply prejudiced in some way, I would agree with you. If you instead say this got sent to an address where this person lived uh, and the address, the summons had that same person's name on it, and maybe the dates are wrong. I view that as closer to human error than nefarious, uh, you know, sup uh, suppression of Amber Heard or Johnny Depp's uh, due process rights. But, you know, I might differ from you. This was a high profile case. You saw that referenced in the initial motion that Heard's team uh, filed. This is very much that kind of 15 minutes of fame notion, right? People could have been trying to slip in where the fact and date of the jury trial were highly publicized prior to and after the issuance of the juror summonses. Virginia has in place statutory code provisions designed to ensure the person called for jury duty is the person arriving for jury duty, that same code section we just looked at. Fairfax County's juror questionnaire webpage furthers this goal by requiring all county residents to log in using their seven-digit juror number, zip code, and birth date, bold and italicized and quoted. Those safeguards are in place and relied upon by the parties to verify the identity of the correct juror to ensure due process and a fair trial for all litigants. When these safeguards are circumvented, again, intentionality, or not followed, as appears to be the case here, the right to a jury trial and due process are undermined and compromised. Could it be, could it be that the website of the Fairfax County, Virginia courthouse pre-fills in certain of your information when you give it the seven-digit juror number. I don't know, but I do know that if I were designing a system, I might otherwise do it that way and ask for verification where maybe, maybe you're intentionally circumventing it because you just really want to be on a jury that day. Or maybe it slips by you because it still says your name and it probably has additional information on that page that you're otherwise verifying and you're just trying to get through this goddamn governmental process. I don't know. Could go either way. But if you're going to assert these things, if you're going to impugn the intentionality, the circumvention, the nefariousness of a juror that just sat for two months of his life to get you a jury verdict, then you best have some evidence 
or else the judge is not going to be thrilled with your argumentation, which is, I think, where this winds up. Miss Heard had a right to rely on the basic protection as prescribed by the Virginia Code that the jurors in this trial would be individuals who were actually summoned for jury duty. In this case, it appears that juror number 15 was not, in fact, the same individual as listed on the jury panel. Ms. Hurd's due process was therefore compromised. Under these circumstances, a mistrial should be declared and a new trial ordered. And so that was the supplement that they had, which basically repeats what they said in the initial motion, adds this kind of factor, which doesn't help their argument to me, right? Because one of the things that you're going to look for uh, as a court, or just in terms of evaluating this on your own, if you're just evaluating the justice uh, at issue here, is was this intentional? Was this some kind of nefarious criminal actor trying to get on this case for reasons of their own? Is it, as Elaine Bredehoff said so often in court, somebody seeking their 15 minutes of fame? And this fact pattern suggests strongly to me that it's not, right? If there is a mistake here, it appears to be an innocent one, and an innocent one made by someone that's a voter on the voter rolls, that's where they get the information, in Fairfax County, which otherwise qualifies them, and happens to not be the person that's in the pool, if this is all accurate, by mistake. And does that actually compromise your particular right to due process and a jury trial if that mistake isn't otherwise showed to prejudice you in any way? This person went through voir dire. You looked for prejudice. And yet, here you are arguing that because apparently this obvious difference between the data that was provided to you by the court and who this person is sitting in front of you, the obviousness notwithstanding, you still are owed a mistrial because you didn't deign to say anything when they were otherwise presented to you. And in general, the law abhors rewarding incompetence. And worse, if we're going to impugn nefarious activity, holding on to what is an obvious mistake in order to force the Commonwealth of Virginia to hold another expensive trial and to put two months of its citizens' lives once again at your beck and call. It's not going to be something that I think the judge is going to love, at least not without further information. Will the court investigate this? Yes, the court will look at this in some important ways. Uh, we'll try to check out the facts here, try to figure out what happened so that it can properly rule on this kind of thing. But it's not a strong argument. Finally, you get a footnote response here. Mr. Depp would be incorrect in contending that Ms. Hurd somehow waived this argument by not raising it during voir dire. Not only were the voir dire questions ruled on in advance, the parties limited to those questions during voir dire, but the responsibility to ensure that the potential jurors participating in voir dire are the ones listed on the jury panel rests with those individuals in the court. Not our job, says Amber Hurd's team, despite the statute saying effectively the opposite. Further, this particular argument says, well, we, we only could ask the questions that were otherwise approved of. Yes, uh, undoubtedly true. Uh, but as you know, you can ask for a sidebar and say, hey, um, I think that person's 77 years old uh, and not 52. Um, or else, you know, they are, um, they, they, they are, they're very youthful looking uh, for being a 77-year-old. Uh, and you can go and tell the court that. Obviously, you can. So this is, again, a BS kind of argument that is patently, obviously, as obvious as a 77-year-old sitting in the courtroom in front of you, false, right? The judge knows that she would have entertained, hey, this, this person, I don't think this person is that person. That's not a question you can anticipate when approving voir dire questions. And of course, it would be allowed in a court of law. Due process entitles litigants such as Ms. Heard to rely on the basic assurance that potential jurors are who they say they are and are the actual individuals of court summit. So you combine all of this, the obviousness, according to Elaine Bredehoff, of this person not being the person on the list. You add to it that it's the court's fault for not figuring out. And as best I can tell, 
What you've argued for between the lines by implication, which is something that this team should know well, is that maybe Amber Heard has a case for incompetence of counsel, right? And I'm saying this sarcastically because she doesn't. But this sounds to me like Elaine Bredhoff saying it was clear from the get-go and I just missed it the whole time for not one week, not two weeks, not three, not four, not five, not even six because we took a week off, but seven weeks. And I just missed it. Sorry about that. Or potentially worse, I held it so I could bring it up for this particular purpose. That's their supplemental memorandum. This is actually what we talked about a little bit on Emily's show last Friday. So we knew about this going into the weekend. What we didn't know of was exactly how Johnny Depp's team would respond. So here you see filed civil processing July 11th. And I do want to hit some super chats again. Again, I very much appreciate it. You guys are the best. Uh, I appreciate the support. I want to uh, I want to talk through those uh, real quick. Uh, Eric Clark, jurors are pulled from a pool. A large number of jurors are called and a small number are assigned. And of that small number, even smaller were on the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. Odds to do that on purpose? Low. I don't know how many juries were sat that day. Um, it was a special case, obviously. So I don't know the specific logistics of what happened in the courtroom that day. But in general, a courthouse brings in a giant pool to populate a, a number of cases all at once. Um, and so, yeah, no one really uh, signs up for jury voluntarily. Usually I have seen in comments, other people want to be on a jury and that's fair. Uh, but in general, you get that summons and you're otherwise going to be prevented from doing work or doing family responsibilities or whatever. It's not great. And if you get assigned to a six week, seven week, eight week trial, you're not thrilled about the prospects uh, of that in general. Um, so you get this juror summons to your house. It says your name on it. You're probably not looking at it super closely because you're grousing about the fact that you've been called in. You fill it out, you do your duty, you show up. And then you go through two months of this, of giving your, your time, your blood, sweat, and tears, giving up potentially compensation. We don't know what these person uh, on the jury's situation is. And uh, at the end of it, you get called out, not just for accident, that's just human error, not just for potentially missing the date of birth on this file, but actually for the implication that you're a fame seeker that wanted to be on this jury and <clears throat> you circumvented the security processes. And then they blame you and they blame the court. They blame anybody but themselves, which honestly is pretty good uh, in terms of representing Amber Heard, as we saw in the courtroom for this particular court case. Uh, but it's not terribly good for actually presenting an argument to the court. So the chances that I think someone would do this deliberately are minimal, if existent at all, right? So I, I tend to see exactly where you're coming from there. Um, Kiwi Girl 75, what publicly available information could they be referring to that would give a juror's date of birth? Uh, so they, they pull up the voter rolls. Um, and then they have probably some property registration things or other things that can tie a person of that name to a different birth date in that very house. And they kind of come up with the explanation for how this happened themselves, right? Which is human error, uh, that a summons comes in and has your name and you show up at court. Makes sense. Also, you probably don't think that the state of Virginia will call in your 77-year-old, in all likelihood, father to be a juror because there's supposed to be a, a time when you're no longer really obligated to show up for jury service. I don't know what that year is in Virginia, but there's a good chance it's below 77. And so you're doing this, you're 50, you say, okay, I guess this is me. And you go in and you go into court. Um, or, you know, I, I don't know. You could potentially have just a, a not innocent 
but well-intentioned kind of Mulan scenario, since I referenced it earlier in the video, where who is called? Well, your father is called, but he's old and he shouldn't have to go to jury duty for two months. So you decide to take it on yourself. That's actually closer to a winning argument for Amber Heard because you shouldn't be doing that kind of thing. But it is at least possible that someone said, okay, I'll, I'll do this for you. I have the same name. It's not going to be a problem. Uh, just like you might go and you know sign the credit card receipt for your same-named father uh, at the restaurant if it's otherwise difficult for him uh, to stand up and, and go sign it himself, uh, right? So you can have these scenarios which are not innocent necessarily. It's kind of deliberate falsehood, but uh, it's well-intentioned uh, on its baseline. So you could have any of those reasons. I don't know what happened here. Amber Heard's team doesn't deign to tell us what they think happened here except by putting in these little minds of, oh, it could have been nefarious, could have been evil. Who is this person, juror number 15? Hmm, could be bad. And yet they present in factual evidence a entirely plausible human error story and don't even acknowledge that that could in fact be the case. Britt Cormier, plot twist, the month and day of both birthdays are the exact same. So it is only the year that is different. Lol, could be. It's redacted, right? We don't know. Uh, but it's absolutely uh, imperative that they present why this is nefarious and how it prejudices their client because due process is important, but they haven't actually presented anything to my mind that actually puts that due process into question. Cat T, JD's team releases a statement that they knew of the age discrepancy prior to the trial and chose to do nothing. So we're going to talk about it. I think that has been presented too strongly. Not that Johnny Depp's team actually argued this, but that the internet reacted to it as if they had. And that's not exactly what they say. They talk about the obviousness and the, the clarity that someone would have and say that that means that they knew the whole time, just like I did. They don't have separate evidence uh, that, you know, they're sitting on it the whole time. We'll, we'll talk about that when we get there. But thank you very much for the super chat. It's definitely an important part of the, the question. Uh, Michael Corey can already see Heard's argument in the media after this gets tossed. Depp planted the juror to influence the verdict. I, I tell you what, if that is in fact the case, the court is going to lose its shit because... The court knows that these people are providing services effectively for free. Yes, they get stipends. They are tiny uh, in these states and or commonwealths. Um, and these are jurors doing their civic duty, doing their responsibility in order to get you, Ms. Heard, a trial of your peers uh, that the state of Virginia, Commonwealth of Virginia, has otherwise paid for all of that stuff in the courtroom, the judge's time, everything else. Yeah, you paid for your lawyers, but this costs the Commonwealth and its citizens uh, a pretty penny. And so now you're going to throw our citizens under the bus. Well, that's when you might start to see real issues and people being called in for hearings and things like that. So that is the state of play going into the Johnny Depp response. And we see it here. We're going to read a little bit more of this because uh, the table of contents isn't as useful. Uh, but we can see they're going to go down the line of arguments that uh, the herd team has made. And we'll be able uh, to read them. Now, their, their copier is a little askew here on page one. The whole document isn't like this, but uh, this isn't this isn't the greatest scanning. I think this is actually the court that probably scanned this, but could be Depp's team. Who knows? Following a six-week jury trial, a jury of Ms. Heard's peers rendered a verdict against her in virtually all respects. Though understandably displeased with the outcome of trial, Ms. Heard has identified no legitimate basis to set aside in any respect the jury's decision. Virginia law is clear that a verdict is not to be set aside unless it is plainly wrong or without evidence to support it. So you see why they have to argue there's no evidence, even if it's complete BS. And yet you shouldn't argue complete BS. Here, the verdict was well supported by the overwhelming evidence consistent with the law and should not be set aside. Mr. Depp respectfully submits the court should deny Ms. Heard's post-trial motions, which verge into the frivolous. This is fight and talk. 
from a lawyer, right? Verge into the frivolous. You start getting into frivolous arguments or specious arguments. That's code for we're getting real close to the sanctionability line, meaning that you should start to consider, judge, court, that this was made out of bad faith. And it is right to punish legal teams and lawyers that do this kind of thing. They verge into, I'm not committing to it. I'm going to lawyer this a little bit. They aren't frivolous. They're just real close. And potentially, I mean, if your honor wants to find them frivolous, we wouldn't, we wouldn't object to that, of course. Uh, but they verge into the frivolous. And that sets the tone here going forward. First, they say a little bit about what we said when we looked at what the argument presented was. The damages awarded by the jury were supported by the evidence and the law. The court should reject Ms. Hurd's baseless contention that the damage award was excessive and unsupported by the evidence. Under Virginia law, the court may only correct a verdict where it is so excessive as to shock the conscience of the court, which I love as a phrase, right? Shock the conscience, t-shirt, don't know. I just love it as a phrase. I've always loved it since law school. Or to compel the conclusion that the verdict was the product of passion or prejudice or some misunderstanding of the facts of the law. The court may not arbitrarily substitute its judgment for that of the jury, in assessing the jury's verdict, the court is required to consider the evidence in the light most favorable to the party that received the jury verdict. So we've talked about this in the opposite, right? We talked about outlets, journalistic outlets, looking at court findings. We talked about it with respect to Fox and defamation in the Dominion case that said journalistic outlets tend to report these motions and motion practice a little bit wrongly because they don't take into account what the court is required by law to kind of be tilted towards. Before a trial, before a lawsuit actually goes to that level and you're looking to dismiss it, the court has to assume that the person asking for dismissal is effectively wrong, that they have to assume that whatever was brought up in the complaint is accurate as pled and see if there is still an avenue for the law to provide redress. That's in a 12B6 motion. There's a bunch of different motions. We're not going to go into the details there. But that means that the court when they say something like, well, that pleading is good, shouldn't be reported on by these various outlets as the court found evidence of, or the court finds that this is an argument that could work. It's not really. It's saying that if it is as described in the documents, that's fine. Here, you have the opposite tilt. You have, okay, a jury found this thing. The court has to start with the assumption that the jury is right. And the burden is on the party that lost to say there was no evidence at all. Right. If nobody had ever presented any evidence that, oh, I don't know, anybody ever read the defamatory statements, because as it turns out, all of the Washington Post websites went down and all of the copies uh, accidentally went into the ocean, uh, then maybe you could say that while it might be defamatory, you didn't actually prove that it went out to any public party. And that's part of the libel claim, all these various things. If you have something that is obvious that wasn't presented as evidence, then maybe you could bring to the court that shouldn't have gone to the jury. But of course, as you saw, Judge A was evaluating these things at the time, right? In that motion to strike, even she held for reconsideration whether or not there was a republication issue with the headline to the article because they didn't, Johnny Depp's team didn't provide evidence that Amber Heard had retweeted the article at that point in time. And Johnny Depp's team had to argue, well, we agreed that we wouldn't call Amber Heard. That was part of a stipulated interest and you can't hold it against us and you have to hold it until Amber Heard speaks, and then you can allow the republication because we'll ask her about the Twitter at that point in time. Judge says, okay, I will wait to actually see that, and then I will go forward from there. And that's, in fact, exactly what the judge did, but that is evidence in and of itself that the judge is considering what the evidence would allow a reasonable jury to determine as we go through the court. 
So once you get to the jury instructions, the judge has already determined that a reasonable judge jury can find on all these various things. While Ms. Hurd slings an exceptional amount of mud at the wall in the hope that something might stick, the jury's verdict on damages was perfectly reasonable and supported by the evidence and testimony in this case. For instance, Mr. Depp's manager, Jack Wiggum, testified to the following. In 2017, the year after Ms. Hurd's public allegations of domestic abuse, but before the op-ed was published, Mr. Depp filmed multiple pictures, including an $8 million and $13.5 million studio picture. 2017 was typical. Because 2017 was busy, Mr. Depp took the early part of 2018 off. Mr. Depp did not appear in studio films between December 18th, 2018, the op-ed date, and October 2020, the date before the UK judgment. And in a response to a question asking if Mr. Depp lost roles between December 28 and October 2020, Mr. Wiggum answered, yes, after the op-ed, it was impossible to get him a studio film is what we would normally would have focused on in that time period. So you don't have to believe Jack Wiggum for anybody, but it seems like the jury did. And the jury is the finder of fact here. All of these arguments, which I'm not going to read to you all extensively, all of these arguments are the jury, a reasonable person in that jury room could have determined these things. And if they could have, it is the court's job to say that that is acceptable in evaluating how this trial proceeded. If a reasonable jury could come up with this conclusion, if evidence was presented to them, then the court cannot substitute its own opinion as to this witness or otherwise in lieu of the jury's determination. For footnote here, Ms. Hurd's assertion that Mr. Depp made no attempt to limit his damages to the time period preceding the UK judgment is simply false. The testimony elicited from Mr. Wiggum and Mr. Depp's damage experts were all limited to the period between publication and the date of the UK judgment. Moreover, the jury instructions expressly limited the time period for which Mr. Depp could recover damages, stating both that Mr. Depp cannot recover damages for any harm that occurred after November 2nd, 2020, and that any damages must have been caused by the defamatory statements at issue and jurors are presumed to follow their instructions, and there's no reason to believe the jury did not in this particular case. So again, their first argument, Hurd's first argument, is flatly wrong. I mean, like, this stuff is easy. Stuff was presented. You don't have to believe it, but a jury is entitled to believe it. The instructions properly covered all this stuff. You see 20 million. You see 40 million. You see all the stuff that we talked about uh, above uh, and prior to that in this video, and this just continues on for some number of pages. It's a very good argument. I don't think it's one that the herd team has any chance of winning, that no evidence was presented on these number claims, so I'm not going to uh, dive too deeply into it. The verdicts on the complaint and counterclaim are consistent. Ms. Hurd's argument that the jury verdicts are inconsistent is clearly wrong. While jury verdicts that are irreconcilably inconsistent cannot stand, the court will harmonize jury verdicts alleged to be inconsistent if there is any reasonable way to do so. So the bent here, what we call the legal standard is, if the court can fashion some kind of reasonable understanding of how a jury could come up with its verdict, then the judge can't otherwise overturn that verdict. And here we already talked about it, but it's obvious that they can. So the jury returned a verdict in Mr. Depp's favor on all three statements in the complaint. Each of those statements contained a defamatory implication that Mr. Depp abused Ms. Hurd. The jury's verdict on these three statements in the complaint reflects the jury's determination that Mr. Depp did not, in fact, abuse Ms. Hurd and that Ms. Hurd was lying about being a victim, victim of abuse at the hands of Mr. Depp. As to the three statements in Ms. Hurd's counterclaim, the jury determined that Ms. Hurd did not meet the elements of defamation for the two statements by Mr. Waldman stating Ms. Hurd's abuse allegations were a hoax. Amber Hurd and her friends in the media used fake sexual violence allegations as both a sword and shield depending on their needs. They have selected some of her sexual violence hoax facts as the sword, inflicting them on the public and Mr. Depp. Not a defamatory statement. And we've reached the beginning of the end of Ms. Hurd's abuse hoax against Johnny Depp. 
not a defamatory statement, according to that jury. Again, this verdict reflects the jury's determination that Mr. Depp did not, in fact, abuse Ms. Heard. It was not defamatory for Mr. Waldman to state Ms. Heard's abuse allegations were a hoax. That is perfectly consistent with the jury's verdict on the three complaint statements. And before we get into the third statement, and obviously the killer blow to this particular argument uh, by the Heard team, I do want to uh, welcome Kurt from Uncivil Law here onto the channel. How are you doing, Kurt? I'm I'm awake. How are You're you doing, sir? How's your I'm bar awake. review going? It's going reasonably well, thank you. I'm doing much better in the evening and afternoons than the morning, which is uh, troubling because the bar exam unfortunately starts in the morning. Taking but place we'll, in the we'll morning. Press on. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Such is the way. I remember it's that. Like, with, could, uh, could we? Could we? Could we do this thing in the evening? I'm much more. I'm much doing much better. <laughs> so uh, we've gone through kind of the overview of the uh, the herd motion to start the supplemental mm -hmm. edition on the eighth, and now we are uh, looking at. Uh, Depp's team's responses yesterday um, mm -hmm. and, and not doing everything that they talk about, because I think a lot of these can be. Does Depp's, out, uh, does Depp's response contain the phrase, this is a world of stupid, because that's what I want to write. <laughs> it does. Well, I did say the introductory paragraph has Ben Chu saying that they verge on frivolous version of the frivolous. Yeah, fr frivolous is one of the worst things you can say to a lawyer. It is mm -hmm. one of those words that uh, gets my attention up real quick. In the first paragraph, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, this is how I described it. I said, well, this this is the you know court. If you wanted to consider sanctions here, we wouldn't be against it. Uh, kind of uh, kind of signaling, um, and it's, so, it's one it's one of those magic words that if I wasn't quite paying attention, you got my attention now because you're you're saying just about one of the worst things you can say. It's, 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 it's a uh, it's a curse word for lawyers. <laughs> oh man, does that count as a curse word for here? It's an F. It's an F word. It's the F it word. Is. It's frivolous. It is. Well, see, yeah, that's why I prefer my things more archaic. I like specious. Mm -hmm. mm, specious. That's a good one. Yes. So in any event, uh, we had talked about this when we were looking at um, Herd's team's argument uh, that the jury verdict was inconsistent as not being true. And Ben Chu rightly points out exactly why that is. The third statement in Ms. Herd's counterclaim is the sole statement for which the jury found Mr. Depp had defamed Ms. Herd. Quite simply, this was an ambush, a hoax. They set Mr. Depp up by calling the cops, but the first attempt did not do the trick. The officers came to the penthouses, thoroughly searched and interviewed, and left after seeing no damage to face or property. So Amber and her friends spilled a little wine, roughed the place up, got their story straight under the direction of a lawyer and publicist, and then placed a second call to 911. I mean, it sounds substantially true to me, Rich. Uh, I'm just sad. <laughs> well, we can talk, as I said at the top of my, my look at this, there is an open question. If this goes to appeals, I would expect Depp's team to raise. If we're allowed to say hoax, how are the details, even if wrong, overly defamatory? Right. No, no, okay, yeah. So Depp, Depp, Depp has multiple different grounds of appeals if we ever get that far. I, I think that this is uh, substantially true vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the, the proven facts is is a uh, is an idea. Um, of course, the other ones that come to mind is that Wallman is not, in fact, an agent. He can't be, in fact, an agent uh, because of the nature of being an attorney. It's just uh, or yeah, he, he can't be an employee. Uh, and to be an agent, you have to be an employee. He's an independent contractor, so he can't be an agent because he's not an employee because he must be an independent contractor. There is uh, insufficient daylight between the uh, the statement as read and reality to be defamatory. Uh, the scope of his agency is completely speculative. I mean, the agent, the uh, the uh, jury is allowed to um, infer uh, reasonable facts, but they're not allowed to speculate. And so what the difference between inference and speculation is, is obviously a matter of debate, but I think there's definitely some ground to have there. 
And there's at least one or two other ones I've spotted in the past, but again, I just woke up and I can't remember. But there's definitely some grounds for uh, Johnny Depp's appeal. Hire me. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Uh, uh, I'm, no, abso so I'm absolutely listening. This is fine. There you go. Uh, <laughs> hey, maybe they're watching. You never know. Mm. Um, so th this is clearly more detailed, right? And this is what we talked about at the top. As is clear from even a cursory review of Mr. Waldman's words, you do, you do love. You can tell, as Judge A said to Ben Chu, you're just a snarky guy. There's a whole host of snark here in the way. I like snark. I, I'm, I'm a snarky guy. I like yeah. snark. Well, there's a ton of it here. Because, again, they start with saying it's, it verges on frivolous. And then there's just kind of like this air of, well, I guess I will deal with these things because it's my job. But isn't this a waste of time, Your Honor? Uh, there are multiple highly specific and detailed factual elements to this statement that the jury could determine were false while still concluding that the abuse allegations my business heard about Mr. Depp were false and defamatory. Now, if I'm Judge A, I look at that, I look at the argument from her, and I look at the argument here and say, yep, that's just a checkbox. Yes, you, you're exactly right. There's no problem with consistency. Uh, and that leads us to what is the, a potential argument that could actually be raised um, that is effectively, as we talked about on the uh, herd side, that implication and public figures isn't uh, something that can occur uh, in Virginia. Now, this argument I do like. I, okay. I, I, because this argument I like is a, is a theoretical possibility, right? There is, it seemed from Hurd's argument, this seemed like colorable legal argument. It seemed unlikely Virginia would go this way, but it seemed colorable. So I'm interested to see what the response is, and maybe it will convince me that Hurd was full of it the whole time, even as to this. Well, there's one particularly snarky response at the end that hopefully I catch when I'm scrolling through these. You can't you can't use my highlighter when they have like the, the full on um, uh, watermarks and are presented in this way. So we have to remember what we're going to talk about for two solid. I'll help hours. you out with Mostly that. Remind me afterwards and I'll help you out with that. Oh, cool. Uh, this court has repeatedly held that Ms. Heard's statements in the op ed are sufficient to support a claim of defamation by implication. Absolutely. That's why we're all here. And Ms. Heard presents no arguments in her motion that would justify a reversal of those whole rulings at this stage. That's right. This is a functional argument that the court just flat out got it wrong uh, mm -hmm. in terms of a legal standard here. Indeed, Ms. Heard egregiously and flagrantly misrepresents Virginia law. Yeah, go, go strong if you're going to go at all. In arguing that the Virginia Supreme Court has signaled defamation by implication may not be applicable when it involves a public figure or matters of public concern. The Virginia Supreme Court has made no such suggestion, and the out-of-context language relied on by Ms. Heard is misleading. Which, of course, we already think about her and her team, so it's, it's useful, again, as a rhetorical device here. They quote some of the cases <clears throat> that uh, Ms. Heard's team quoted against them, and we didn't read this section <clears throat> as part of this video because we went through the table of contents to just kind of give an idea of what they were arguing. Here they say, effectively, that in the case cited, in that case, the defendants argued their statements were protected by the First Amendment. The Virginia Supreme Court rejected that argument, stating a defamatory innuendo is no more protected by the First Amendment than is defamatory speech expressed by any other means. So you have an overall kind of concept in 2015. We're not speaking directly on point here, but it is conceptual that it would seem like that court would entertain implication uh, of uh, anything. But we're not talking about public figures here. The Pendleton Court then discussed Chapin versus Knight Ritter, not to be confused with Knight Ritter, a fourth I've circuit case. I made that case mistake more than once. <laughs> that involved public figures and a subject matter that touched on matters of public concern. Critically, the Fourth Circuit recognized that even in a case involving public figures and matters of public concern, there still could be defamation by implication. A plaintiff was a public figure, yet the court noted that defamatory meaning may be communicated by direct reference or by implication. 
Yes, but as you can see, we don't actually have them tying up that knot. So one imagines that they actually didn't find specifically on implication here or else Ben Chu probably would have shared it with us. But the Chapman court also recognized in such a case that a libel by implication plaintiff was making an especially rigorous showing where the expressed facts are literally true. The language must not only be reasonably read to impart the false innuendo, but it must also affirmatively suggest that the author also intends or endorses the inference. Now, with that as the quote, remember what we talked about in the insurance case yesterday, which is that that insurer wants to get out of things because the jury had before it a portion of its instructions that required them to say yes to the fact that Amber Heard intended the defamatory implication, which seems to be responsive to this kind of concept here. It's also why that particular insurance company might find more success than I would have otherwise thought, because implication requires this intentionality, and that could be important to that particular case. We still, however, outside of the person is a public figure in the parenthetical here, don't see quotes that talk about it directly just yet. The Virginia Supreme Court in Pendleton went on to distinguish the specific language from the facts in Pendleton, stating, our decisions in defamation cases do not include a requirement that a libel by implication plaintiff must make an especially rigorous showing where the expressed facts are literally true. The plaintiff's burden is proof by preponderance of the evidence, nor have we held that the defendant's words must by themselves suggest the author intends or endorses the allegedly defamatory inference. Such a holding would immunize one who intentionally defames another by careful choice of words to ensure that they state no falsehoods if read out of context. Mm -hmm. So the Pendleton court walks that back a little bit. So what we're saying here right now, and there's nothing wrong with what Ben Chu is putting forth here, is the fact that, as Kurt said, it does appear to be a question of Virginia law that isn't entirely settled one way or the other. Like, you don't mm. have Ben Chu hitting the silver bullet that says this is exactly what happens. He has these kind of broad assertions that, generally speaking, implication is okay. We know that already. Mm -hmm. We know Virginia is okay with implication. Uh, that's how this whole court has proceeded. But we don't see it tied so closely to that public figure concept as it would need to be in order to, for this to be the silver bullet that he's looking for. Correct. That said, and this is why I like this yeah. argument because Elaine does appear to cite relevant authority in other in other states. Now, this is a matter strictly of Virginia state law, uh, whatever way Virginia wants to go. So all the other authority in all the other states of the world is what we call persuasive authority. It's <laughs> not binding authority. It just is guidance for us if we want to use it or not, depending on how we want to go. That being the case, it's still available. So there does appear to be authority in other states, which is merely persuasive, that you can distinguish this, where you can distinguish the idea of defamation by implication versus a public figure compared to like a non-public figure. And there can be a there can be a separation. I didn't think Elaine, for my for my I, I somewhat disagree here with the argument that she like unduly mischaracterized Virginia law. I didn't really <laughs> didn't really see that. Um, and she's trying to she's trying to say, look, other states have created this difference. OK, Virginia has never explicitly spoken to this issue. It sure so doesn't Virginia seem like should, it. For, Virginia should distinguish. And here's some authority from some other places that suggest that this is a good idea. This That's is a perfect coming. this is a perfectly lucid argument and the kind of argument that I I crave in my heart because it's a pure legal argument. And that's where I like to live. That's coming, Kurt. This is a little bit of the saber rattling uh, and the rhetorical flourish. I agree with you, by the way, on the weakness here. And, and I think a judge can read it, which is to say, this is what this is what Depp's team has to do here, which is say, you're you're flatly wrong. And let's read some quotes from the Virginia Supreme Court, because that's the most important thing to you, uh, uh, your, your honor. 
And then we're going to tell you that. The Virginia Supreme Court is definitely the most important thing to me if I'm a state law judge trying to interpret state law. Yes, that would definitely be the most important thing. And we're going to tell you that this says what you need it to say to, mm. to rule for us. But you can read it and be like, well, it doesn't quite now, does it? Mm. Um, and so that's exactly what happens here. He, he, th these paragraphs basically say uh, it says exactly what we need. It, it kind of doesn't, but no. you know, more power it, to you. It, it kind of doesn't. And then we get, <clears throat> indeed, Many other jurisdictions have recognized the sound policy that defamation by implication is permissible for public figure plaintiffs. They sure um, have. Yes. And he pulls up Iowa. We conclude that despite plaintiff status as a public figure, he may maintain a suit based on alleged defamation by implication. But even Elaine cited Iowa. She even said, but see Iowa. She cited the contrary authority in her argument, which mm -hmm. again speaks to my heart because she did exactly what she's supposed to do. She's supposed to Elaine cite contrary credit. authority and she did it. She we did a great Elaine job. Credit. I don't like the I don't like the meta arguments. I wouldn't have started with no evidence was presented on damages and that crap. But I I, I think no she no no. There's a lot motion. of no. There's a lot of crap arguments. <laughs> well, there's a lot of crap arguments, but even the crap arguments were well written. So I did appreciate the way it was written. So they might have been crap, but they were a well written crap, and I do appreciate that. But we got eight. We got eight. But, but I will recognize I will recognize a viable argument if I find one, and this looks viable to me. We got uh, Chapin, the Revenge of Chapin. We got Seventh Circuit. We got Central District for California. Uh, we got wherever Stevens is here, the Northwest reporter. Um, and this is what we call a string site, right? Indeed, many other support our position. And then it's just a paragraph of mm -hmm, things mm -hmm. that roughly support that position. Um, as the testimony and evidence, the ACLU's corporate representative in the case showed Ms. Heard made a very calculated effort in crafting the language of the op-ed to try to avoid any explicit defamatory reference, which is an interesting way to characterize this, but it is in fact what the jury basically found. She should not be able to skirt liability stemming from the devastating impact of her op-ed simply by carefully choosing her words so as to convey a defamatory meaning about Mr. Depp, but without actually using his name. Such a result would be manifestly unjust and has no support in Virginia law. This is what you might call the equitable paragraph. Mm. This doesn't actually relate to anything else. It's just like, it's it's a manifest injustice. Uh, we had a jury look at this uh, and this is what Virginia law should be, regardless of what else you might believe. Uh, simply put, the Supreme Court of Virginia has never held or hinted that defamation by implication does not apply to public figures as a matter of public concern. And this is kind of a burden shifting sentence here that says, yeah, OK, maybe we don't have the silver bullet that we need, but we do have a jury finding. You already determined that this was OK and they didn't present the opposite. Mm. So what are we doing? Um, the court has. No, they didn't present the opposite, nor did they claim to present the opposite. They they claim it is a question unknown to Virginia law. And they're like, well, here's what you should do. I'm like, okay, great. Now, incidentally, there's absolutely no chance on this world that Judge A is going to agree with this because it's a question it. unknown to Virginia law. All, all Judge A has at this time is Virginia law, which says defamation by implication is cool. Yep. And so she basically really has no choice, to be honest. She has no choice. But well, she already judged this. on that. Like, if we're being honest, yeah. she, her, she, she has already no has her judgment on yeah. the record. That's why yeah. the case exists. Yeah, exactly. So she has, she really has no choice but to deny this. And she's not wrong for denying it because the law doesn't support this proposition. But that being the case, if the Court of Appeals or the Virginia Supreme Court is inclined to change the law, this is this is a viable argument for an appellate court, not for well, hell man, court. This is a First Amendment complaint with manifestly different state and circuit uh -huh. approaches. Let's take this to the Supremes. Johnny Depp and Amber Heard at the Supreme Court. Let's do it. Well, the, no, it is an issue. For, well, not the U.S. Well, no, it's not really the U.S. Supreme Court. Screw that. The U.S. Supreme Court would never hear this noise. But the <laughs> Supreme Court of Virginia might because yeah, it's, it uh, it's potentially an issue of novel state law and potentially the state law wants to change. I don't know. 
Well, it just depends on pocketbooks and desires at that point, depending on which way an appeals court might otherwise hold on it. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so, and what I wanted to finish off with, and I'm, oh God, I, I, I wanted to make sure I didn't miss it. Um, okay, so it's footnote six here. Um, she, the, this is the equitable argument, right? And then here's footnote six, which attempts to answer the question of the other precedents that she brings up. <clears throat> To the extent Ms. Heard invokes the non-binding law of other jurisdictions where defamation by implication of a public figure is only permissible when the inference arises from the omission of material facts in the challenge communication, see her motion, such a standard would still be unavailing. Why? For Ms. Heard, who failed to disclose the material fact that she was not sexually or physically abused. Well, she did disclose that she was, at least according to the article in college. Now, then, then, of course, the question becomes... Uh, who, what the headline is referring to, which the jury uh, inferred was about Depp. Um, so there are some problems there, but okay. Yes, no, that's the overall response is that those precedents still allow for it um, as long as it's omission of a material fact that rises to the level of the defamatory implication. And they say, well, of course, you didn't mention that we're not talking about Johnny Depp, that this would have been, you know, a diffused if you said, oh, by the way, I'm not talking about Johnny, which probably wouldn't work because you put the elephant in the room. Uh, but yes, that's that's the main response to that binding uh, to that non-binding uh, precedent. And that's that's where he leaves off on this. There, there isn't a great answer here um, to this one from from either side. And that, I think, is why Kurt likes it as an argument is because it does have that kind of appeal flavor to it uh, of an appellate court being interested in that. Uh, the jury's finding of defamation regarding the op-ed headline was consistent with and supported by the law and facts. This one isn't terribly interesting. This is a terrible argument um, by, by Heard's side. But they say, hey, we presented evidence uh, that she retweeted it. We presented evidence uh, that it was clearly in context uh, defaming our client, Mr. Depp, with especially the rest of the uh, article and the two years ago kind of concept. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where this kind of goes. Uh, it has a lot of uh, citations, but... Because Ms. Hurd adopted the statement as her own, affirmatively reiterated the statement, substantively added to the statement, and disseminated the statement to a new audience, Ms. Hurd adopted, republished the statement in every sense of the law. The jury was fully justified in its finding Ms. Hurd liable for the headline, which we already, again, know that Judge A has ruled on. This was ruled on in the motion to strike, that it was possible for a reasonable jury to find that this was a republication based on the evidence presented by the tweet. So again, when they say it's frivolous, it's that they've asked for things that they already know the answer to. Uh, in this post-motion kind of setting. Yeah. And that's where it comes from. Is It's like, when, when judges hate it, it's, you're wasting my time. Hit yeah. me with that argument. Stop wasting my time. Stop hit, it. Hit me with that argument about can implication be used on public figures. That's interesting. Hit me with this juror argument. It, it, it might not this juror work, argument but it's interesting. <laughs> um, also, can we just point out that Elaine and uh, they, they definitely just doxed some, some jurors because... Like, how many people are there where there's a 77-year-old and a 52-year-old with the same last name living in the same house in Fairfax County, mind you, in Fairfax because County. they had to be a member of this jury, so they had to live in Fairfax. So, yeah. Especially when it was Elaine's team that wanted the names and identity sealed. And there is, there is basically no way on this earth that they didn't just dox the jurors by saying, well... You know, it, we're not going to tell you what what their what their name is, but we will tell you that there's a 72 year old and a 52 year old, and they have the same last name. And by the way, they must live in Fairfax County because they were members of this jury. So the kind of narrows down the pool pretty sharply. 
for anybody inclined to find him, I do think that you have enough details. Yeah. Um, uh, so uh, I, I, I'm, I'm as Judge A is, is, is I want to sanction people for basically defying your own motion at that point. I want to whack people around. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I hadn't considered that kind of angle for it, but there, there is definitely enough information there. Um, yeah. to, to go find him for those inclined. Don't do that, folks, by the way. Please do not dox the jury. Yeah. Yeah. Please do uh, not help Elaine dox yeah. the jury. These people deserve to be left alone. They deserve to be anonymous. This has been the system that we've had basically forever. Leave them alone. Yeah. So uh, then we get the actual malice argument. And as we've said before, as I think actually Kurt brought me to the light on and sometime during like week three, of the trial, there is no actual malice kind of consideration here because one or the other is lying. Uh, and so once you get into that, that's exactly what Ben. Oh yeah. Said. They have to know they're lying. That's the thing. <laughs> like the actual malice is a give me normally it's borderline impossible. Yep. It's borderline impossible, but here it's a give me argument because of course, Amber Heard has to know it's a lie. She was either there or not. Well, when she was being hit, I mean, she was either there. She was there when she was being hit or not hit. She yeah, would know if she was hit or not hit. She was there. So she must know. Perfectly. So it's a gimme. If, as the jury concluded, her allegations of abuse were false, then the test for malice is satisfied by virtue of the jury's finding that she was making those allegations up. Simply put, a reasonable jury, having found that Ms. Heard's story was false, could reasonably conclude from the evidence that Ms. Heard was aware that her claims were false. Indeed, a reasonable jury likely could not come to any other conclusion. Except, of course, we did talk about while we covered the trial, there was a defense you could have run that... She was being fed information from her psychiatrist. She was crazy. You could have run some of this stuff to get you to a different mens rea. They didn't want to do that. She was adamant. No, no. Yeah, this is like, uh, this is also going to when people in chat ask, well, can she plead in Sandy? I'm like, or, or using Sandy like she's crazy, some sort of defense. So it's like, whether or not she could, she didn't. She didn't make that argument. So that's over now. So. Yeah, yeah, so I think that one's pretty easy. He does spend some time on it because it's important. Uh, but basically, that's the nature of the the argument, which is um, that he, if Johnny Depp hit her, he knows he's lying. And if he didn't, she knows she's lying. Uh, actual mm -hmm. malice when you publish those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, Mr. Depp presented sufficient evidence to support a finding, finding of defamation by innuendo. Kurt, do you happen to know the difference in usage of terms of art here between innuendo and implication? I'm not sure there is one, but if there is one, then you got me. No, I no, it's fair. I don't think there is one necessarily either, but I do know that they use they use both terms, uh, and I wanted to make sure I at least asked somebody in Virginia. Maybe <laughs> it's, maybe it's just the courts have used them, and we just sure. want to use both terms in the sense of covering our bases. But I don't think there's a distinguishment. Not that okay. I'm aware of. All right, great. Um, and then so we get we get again strong Ben Shu, uh, you know, uh, against the the other party again with just strong language in her desperate attempt to justify the extreme remedy of setting aside the jury's carefully considered determinations, which were fully supported by overwhelming credible evidence, a mountain, a mountain of evidence. Ms. Heard presents a tortured recitation <laughs> of Virginia defamation law, the evidence presented at trial, and the op-ed itself. The actual evidence, however, presented during the six-week trial before this court, which must be considered in the light most favorable to the plaintiff, Mr. Depp, is more than sufficient to sustain the jury's determination that Ms. Heard's op-ed defamed Mr. Depp by innuendo. Um, and then it's basically the case. Like the problem, the problem with this particular argument is both in Elaine's motion and in the response here, it's just litigating the case. Here, here is the stuff that we showed that says this is how you can yeah. get to Johnny Depp uh, was defamed. And this was all presented. Judge A let it go to the jury on the premise that a reasonable jury could find these things. Yeah. And so you don't have any 
purchase to find, to use Amber Heard's term, in an argument like this because the judge has already ruled on it. The judge already determined that there was enough here to actually let this go to the jury. And we know from the way Judge A was operating that she was waiting to actually get enough evidence to allow certain of these things. We know that because she held the republication of the headline until she actually heard about the tweet. And she said, it's not going to the jury if we don't get that tweet. Um, and they said, okay. Uh, and they get the tweet questions in. And then she says, okay, it's allowed to go to the jury. Like she's she's doing her job. And so this argument's not yeah. going to hold for her. Some of this argumentation is is yeah. for setting up appeals. Well, even in appeal, most of this argument is shit. Like the jury didn't have enough evidence. Oh, the jury, the jury couldn't possibly conclude it was about Depp. Oh, they couldn't possibly conclude this was the right dollar amount. Oh, whatever. It's like most of these arguments are just shit. That's yeah. what juries are for. There's evidence presented. A reasonable person can find it. We yeah. all got to see the damn trial. It was as public as anything. And right. you can look at it and say, yes, a reasonable person could have come with that fact. Now, do you have to agree with that? No. No, Every appellate no judge... absolutely not. Because different juries and, and you know, anyone, uh, if you talk to any lawyer who's had the misfortune of having a case retried, they will tell you that two different juries will focus on completely different things, yeah. ask completely different questions. Uh, care about different things, have completely different discussions. When you put those five or well, six, when you put those six or seven or 12 people in the back of the room, you're going to have a different dynamic discussion because they're different people, amazingly. And so those people could have had basically any discussion. They could have decided probably very reasonably that some of all these statements were not about Depp, not of or concerning him, uh, or any of the other many factors that were in play but they decide these factors and it's like well that's kind of what we have jurors for so i'm sorry you know if you had rolled if you had rolled the the cosmic dice differently on a different day you might have won also incidentally if ronborn was running the case rather than elaine breadoff you might have won but sadly we are where we are yeah i think there's defenses that could have won this absolutely um and uh, yeah it, in this particular case, though, this jury found these things. That's what we. That's what we. Uh, that's what we pay the jurors for. The, mm. the enormous the thirty bucks a day. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. that, that's yeah, what the jurors are for. They're the finders that's... of fact. Yeah. And you don't have to agree with them, but if, as long as it was a possible for a jury to find that, then the judge isn't supposed to step in and say no. So you get these arguments that are kind of exactly what you'd expect if you watch the trial. There is sufficient evidence, including the op-ed itself. Hey, Your Honor, we could have just presented the op-ed. And that's enough for a jury to find that it was defamatory. Sure, absolutely. Mr. Depp presented evidence of relevant surrounding circumstances that would reasonably cause a reader to understand the three statements were conveying a defamatory implication about Mr. Depp. Now here, he also points out that one of the arguments that Elaine makes is that there weren't contemporaneous statements. He also says they, they aren't required. They may be used to help establish the implication, but you can have the implication just from the statements themselves. Mr. Depp is not recovering for statements Ms. Heard made during the judicial proceeding. He points out here in this section that they didn't use anything from the judicial proceeding for the temporary restraining order. They didn't use the temporary restraining order language uh, itself, but that doesn't mean we're not allowed to ever say anything about the judicial proceeding, right? Ms. Hurd's final, final argument, unsurprisingly, contorts the trial evidence in Virginia defamation law. He's using his full thesaurus for saying bad things. I, I, appre I appreciate the thesaurus. I appreciate it. <laughs> Ms. Hurd appears to argue that because Ms. Hurd publicly sought a domestic violence restraining order against Mr. Depp, any further statement she makes about the abuse alleged in the DVRO is privileged. There's law and lumber in the chat. If he's in the chat, why is he not in the in, in the uh, stream? That's what I want to He might be know. working. He might be golfing. Or working, golfing. What is this nonsense? We don't know what he's doing. He, more, he may already have had uh, whiskey time. It's only nine in the morning in Virginia. It's all good. 
Uh, the judicial privilege also referred to as absolute privilege is not so broad. It does not apply to any statement made about facts that are the subject of a judicial proceeding. And at trial, Mr. Depp did not even present any evidence of a statement Ms. Heard made in a judicial proceeding. He presented evidence of the media coverage surrounding Ms. Heard's allegations of abuse mm -hmm. against Mr. Depp in 2016, including articles which included photographs of Ms. Heard with purported injuries. She allegedly I, I will point out here that you are potentially somewhat undercutting your own argument when it comes to Walderman. Because right. while well, the judicial privilege is not absolute, that does swing both ways, right? So it also potentially extends the Walderman in his statement. So that undercuts. This is, uh, you know, one of the things as a lawyer you, you recognize is that not all your arguments are free. Sometimes they yeah. cut both ways. Yeah, that's 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 true. I, you know, Waldman is speaking. Did they did they argue for Waldman having um, uh, judicial privilege as part of those statements? Well, I'm, I, I mean. It doesn't. I, I let's just assume that they. I don't remember the details. I'm just saying it's a it's a viable argument, right? Because obviously the statements weren't made in court. He didn't make them in the court proceedings strictly. He made them some point outside the courtroom in some sort of context. So related. To then the it case. becomes a question. Well, if it's not absolute and it doesn't extend to all statements, then it must be the case that Waldman statements are not privileged. So. Bingo, bango, you kind of undercut your own argument a little bit, potentially. That's true. Although I do think all the agency stuff is the strongest. No, no, no. There's a lot of other arguments that yeah. are also winnable. I'm just pointing out that there's at least one argument you made that somewhat cuts both ways. Like, I can still think that Waldman wins uh, for other reasons. It's just, yeah. you know. No, I'm you're not wrong. Out, I'm trying to point out complexity. Yeah. No, I think it's good. And then we get to Section 8. The court should not conduct an investigation of Juror 15 which I think they're going to, but that's okay. Because no, I don't think they're going to. I think, I think well, What does the investigation mean to you? They're going to look into it. <laughs> they're going to look at some docs. You don't think so? I don't know. If I'm Judge A, I can't be bothered right now. I, I mean, I think they would at least look into some documents. I don't think you can just ignore the thing, um, but maybe. Ignoring the thing sounds really good to me right about now. Well, she'll be upset about the uh, definitely the implications that are thrown around about intentionality and circumvention of security features and things like that. Um, because I, I think the best, most likely argument for what at least Team Heard has presented is human error. Um, so, I mean, I, I, but I do think I do think the court has to at least kind of go and see, uh, is anything that they're saying accurate? What, what are we looking at here? Um, but they said they, could, they shouldn't conduct an investigation because defendant has waived such arguments because of voir dire and has failed to provide any evidence of unfair prejudice or any due process violation. This is all true, but if I'm the court, I still want, I still want to know if, if there's anything there at all. Ms. Hurd's desperate, after-the-fact demand for an investigation of Juror 15 based on a purported error in his birth date is misplaced. As a threshold matter, Ms. Hurd waived her right to challenge the accuracy of the information listed in the jury panel by failing to raise this objection contemporaneously. It shall be sufficient yeah. that a party at the time the ruling or order of the court is made or sought makes known to the court the action which he desires the court to take or his objections to the action of the court in his grounds, therefore. A bunch of sites here that says you're supposed to object at the time. Further, yeah, no doubt. I mean, yeah. <laughs> any lawyer knows that. Use it or lose it. Further, Virginia Code 801352 outlines the procedure for objecting to irregularities in jury lists and to alleged legal disabilities of jurors and provides that unless objection to such irregularity or disability is made pursuant to subsection A herein, and unless it appears that the irregularity was intentional or that the irregularity or disability be such as to probably cause injustice, in a civil case to the party making the objection, then such irregularity or disability shall not be cause for mm -hmm. summoning a new panel or juror or for setting aside a verdict or granting a new trial. That sounds like pretty powerful language to me, Rich. Yes, you see, you see when we talked in earlier sections about the fact that Mr. Chu 
didn't quite have the silver bullet for yeah. uh, things like does implication work on a public figure? This, these this are your is, silver. This bullets. is pretty silver bullet. <laughs> That's pretty silver bullet. These are your silver bullets. You've got in your statutory code. This doesn't work. Pretty strong. Pretty strong at the end of the day. As discussed further below, Ms. Hurd has shown no evidence of prejudice or injunctive, and therefore her belated argument regarding Juror 15 should be rejected by the court. Then a couple of sites where that kind of thing has happened, including refusing to reverse a case where two convicted felons sat on a jury, a matter which was not discovered until after trial nice. because the defendant made no showing of injustice. Finding the defendant's objection to the qualification of the juror was untimely, where defendant had knowledge of the fact that a brother of a sworn juror would be a material witness in the case, but did not make an objection until after brother's testimony was not in accord with what he hoped and thought it would be. Even if the relationship between the juror and the witness were a sufficient reason for disqualifying the juror, defendant with full knowledge of this relationship accepted him as a juror without objection. His objection to the qualification of the juror and his motion to discharge the jury came too late. Good job, first-year associates. These are nice. <laughs> Yeah. Somebody was doing the research on that memo. Excellently done. Contrary to Ms. Hurd's contention, otherwise, the parties do have a statutory obligation to verify the accuracy of the information listed in the jury panel before trial, and any errors are not grounds for a mistrial. Or as this section says, any error in the information shown on such copy of the jury panel shall not be grounds for a mistrial. It's pretty good. Or assignable as error on appeal, and the parties in the case shall be responsible for verifying the accuracy of such information. Now, remember... A couple of things are happening here. They know this. They footnote it in their motion. They know this exists. And what they say is kind of this reverse trap of rhetoric. They say, well, okay, sure. If we just have a problem with the information on the directory, then we can't get a mistrial. But that's not what we're worried about. We're worried about the fact that the person is different than what was described on the directory. It's like, but that's the that's the same thing. <laughs> that's it's a that's little the bit the same thing. Coin. No, I do. I do. I, on some level, I do have to admire the cleverness of trying to split the difference. Oh, I respect the flourish. because I respect. I mean, again, <laughs> uh, I, again, a lot of these arguments don't work, but I still think they're well written. Like, I, I really do like the way that Elaine wrote her arguments about the jury didn't have enough evidence. Uh, the jury couldn't possibly, you know, read the inference in the, the the damages. The damages weren't sufficiently limited. You know, they were looking outside the right time period. All these arguments are crap. But if you're looking for a well-written, uh, here's what I would say. If you're interested in learning how to write in a losing position, which is a good trait for a lawyer to learn how to lose or to do, because you, oh. you'll, you'll, you, might, you, you might be in some version of a losing to lost position because, you know, at least 50% of the time on like the global averages of things, you're going to be on the wrong side of the argument because 50% of the time lawyers are on the wrong side of the argument. So yeah. if you want to learn how to write better, when you're on a losing to loss side of the argument. I look at what Elaine wrote because I thought it was extremely well-written. I thought she earned her fee. So I thought she did great. I don't think it works for the most part, but it was great. I don't think there's any question that she's a better document writer than she is alive. No, um, no. She was a fantastic, she was a fantastic uh, uh, writer. If I would absolutely hire Elaine all day, every day to write my pleadings. Yeah. If, well, as long and, as we're, as long as we're in written form, Elaine, you're the greatest lawyer. You're, you're great. Sometimes the facts aren't on your side and reasonable minds can definitely differ on strategy. Um, I do think they throw too much crap at the wall and I think that gives a bad smell. Uh, I do tend to, what, to agree. This is also overall. a good, this is a very good point. Um, and one I've made uh, before as well. When you are looking at making arguments, whether it's at the trial level or at the appellate argument, but I tend to think more about appeal, but the same things at trial, you want to be careful 
about making weak arguments because it can make all your arguments seem weak. It's the one bad apple in the bunch kind of idea. You know, the one bad apple tends to spoil the whole bunch. So just because you have 10 arguments you could make to the appellate court, for example, does not in any sense mean that you should make all 10 arguments. You have to at least consider the possibility that some of them are weaker and might detract from your stronger arguments. And I, I think uh, to some degree we're seeing that here. You got to pick your poison. And, and there, there's always a desire to say, hey, maybe this yeah. is the one that actually finds uh, the, the, yeah. the, 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 the judge likes for some reason. And you, right. you're reticent to keep it in your drawer. Uh, but, you know, I think, again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Open... That, 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 that is a strategy, too. Because, like, I, I think at least reading these cases from time to time, sometimes you are honestly surprised at what seems to be winning. So it's like, oh, geez, I would have never made that argument because it seems dumb. But this judge seemed to like it. So it makes you question everything you ever thought and ever believed in. Well, but, we went, like, but anyone who plays any game, you've got to make some strategies, and sometimes you uh, yeah. make the wrong call, and you just got to press human on. beings all the way down. But I mean, yeah, we started human beings all the way down. That's right. Example. That that yeah. judge essentially found an issue with one section of the rules that wasn't briefed, like it wasn't part of their, <laughs> it wasn't part of their <laughs> that argument. Can even happen sometimes too. That's and in rare, the middle of trial, does. it was clear that she cared about it, and so like there was a shifting in in covering it. Um, and then it wound up being Epic's only win, which got, um, you know, enjoined pending appeals. And I think they're going to lose it, but I think they're going to win the actual legislatures of the various countries of the world. So I don't know that it matters uh, in the long run, but it's, um, uh, yeah, absolutely. You just don't know what a judge or especially a jury is going to find interesting. Mm -hmm. um, disregarding this clear statutory language directly on point to Ms. Hurd's issue with Juror 15, Ms. Hurd shamelessly prevents, presents this argument to the court. Further, the clerk's office provided the pre-panel jury list to the parties on April 6, 2022, five days before the jury was impaneled. I don't know what voice to use for bold and italics, which gave Ms. Hurd's ample time to verify the accuracy of the information contained therein. Mm -hmm. In a rare moment of candor. Ouch. Ms. Hurd admits that she was aware of this purported discrepancy in Juror 15's birth year from the very start of trial because Juror 15 was clearly born later than 1945. Now, okay. My colleagues on the internet have presented this sentence, as well as what we'll see with respect to the response to the supplemental memo, as Hurd's team knew in advance. And that's definitely what Je Depp and Chu are arguing here. But it's only in the same way that we have said that they must have known, right? This is not, this is not evidence. This is not a piece of paper that they have that says, ha we knew in advance. This is when you use the word clearly, when you use the word obviously, what are we talking about here, kids? Exactly. And I still say that if we were to give them the benefit of the doubt, which I do not think Team Herd has earned in no. their motions no. or anything, but if you give them the benefit of the doubt, I do believe there is a circumstance where you get a lot of information and you could say, well, it just slipped by us and we realized it. Um, and more particularly, after you lose the case, you go and you look at things with a fine tooth comb when you're when you're putting together your appellate structure and things like this. I don't think that's what happened. I tend to be on this side, which says if that person really was supposed to be 77, come on. Um, but um, this isn't actually that silver bullet that I've seen the internet go out with a little bit. This is them I don't know, just, man. I don't know. It's a little silver bullety. If it's clear, if it's obvious, they use the word clearly, but they use. I mean, okay, but again, all right. Let's let's spin it around the other way, which is that Elaine is trying to be demonstrative and is trying to be this is obviously an error at the court level and she used the word clearly to indicate mm. that it's something that the court has to act on <clears throat> not that it was clear when we needed it to be in the courtroom and, and, okay. and look, look all i'm saying is that this isn't evidence this is just 
them saying that if it's so clear, they must have known in advance, which is exactly what we all said. It's not something new. It's just what you would expect the argument to be. Um, and that's, did look that's, at them every day for I, I, like eight hours a day at least for seven weeks, not to mention the ramp up time when they were in the and you and you're just noticing just now. I, with your with your team of lawyers, I'd like to take note. It's not I'm exactly not like you were you. wanting for pairs of eyes or intelligence. You had how many p- counsel at table plus how many people in the in the gallery that were uh, counsel adjacent, so they could sure, sit in the upper row and no off. one noticed. Really? You probably, you probably did research ops on the five days that you had. To I would stay. think. Yeah, no, I would think I, you did I, lots of research ops. Yes, I get you, and I think that's all true. And I think that they that, that they must have known in advance. But this, to me, is just the sentence that says they must have known in advance. And and people on the internet are using it to say that you know they nailed them on this. And it's like, well, this is just what we knew going in, which is like it seems to strain credibility to suggest that. I mean, what is it that you that I mean exactly what what argument are you trying to make exactly, counselor? Okay, let's go with it wasn't obvious, it wasn't clear at the time. Okay, fine. So what you're telling what now, now what you're trying to tell me is that you, Elaine Bredoff, and you, Mr. Ron Bourne, and you, your entire legal team sitting at the bench, and you, your entire legal team adjacent sitting in the front row of the courthouse, and you, all the paralegals, and you, everyone, you're trying to tell me, you, this incredibly sophisticated, well-respected law firm with all these people, you sat there day hour after hour, day after day, week after week, and nobody noticed and you're just now having the realization oh geez we didn't notice this person was 20 years off it's is a surprise to us and so my so my uh, counter is okay like what kind of discount legal team are you trying to purport to be here exactly it's like this I don't is think another winnable argument i don't How think stupid are you collectively yeah i don't think you were on the stream but when i first covered the motion I said, honestly, but reading between the lines here, this sounds like they're setting up for their own incompetence of counsel argument. We're too incompetent, Your Honor. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they won't win that on this kind of thing. You have to be real incompetent to win that. Um, but Incompe- it, 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 yeah, ineffective assistance of counsel is really, really hard. And there's nowhere even close to anything resembling ineffective assistance of counsel anywhere in this. Amber Heard's just yeah, a bad just, client with a bad case. Lawyering. They tried. They did, they did, well, they did a good job with the shit sandwich they had. To say incompetence yeah. or say ineffective assistance of counsel is ludicrous. Yeah. <laughs> it's no, insane. And, and I see chat. I'm, I, I'm agreeing with you all that I, I think it strains credibility that they didn't know. I'm just saying that this is just that raw assertion, just like I said, just like chat's saying. It's not some kind of new uh, and novel piece of evidence that Ben Shue or Johnny Depp's team has arrived at. They've just said, um... Yeah. Okay. Well, if it's so clear, you must have known, and that's fair. But it's it, to me, it's not. It's been treated as a little bit stronger than I, I think it is. That's the only commentary I was making there uh, online. Uh, Ms. Heard chose not to raise this alleged discrepancy quotes with the court during the voir dire process or at any time during the six week trial, and thereby waived it. Mm-hmm. Moreover, Ms. Heard's argument is based on pure speculation. Not wrong. First, Ms. Hurd cites to publicly available information that Juror 15 was actually born in 1970, but fails to attach such information to her motion or otherwise identify it to the court. And then they talk about the supplemental motion. We'll see their direct supplemental response. Uh, but their main argument is that it's late. 
uh, that they had until the first, they get it in on the eighth. It shouldn't count for that reason. And then to the extent the court does consider this additional information, Mr. Depp maintains his contention that Ms. Heard has waived her argument by not objecting either in voir dire or during the entire course of the trial. Um, second, Ms. Heard provides no support whatsoever for her conclusory assertion that the due process was somehow compromised. While Ms. Heard has a right to an impartial jury, see sites, she has failed to identify any way in which the inclusion and service of Juror 15, assuming arguendo that there has been a mistake in his birth year, somehow robbed her of that opportunity. Unsurprisingly, Ms. Heard cites to no case law to support her argument that the service of Juror 15, if he is not the same individual that the court assigned as Juror 15, somehow compromised her due process and would warrant the drastic remedy of sitting setting aside the verdict and ordering a new it, trial. It, it doesn't. Ms. Heard makes no showing of any prejudice, and accordingly, her speculative arguments fail. Neither the sole yeah. fact of irregularity nor their mere suspicion of injustice based upon the irregularity is sufficient to warrant setting aside a verdict. 1986, 1941, mere suspicion or possible inferences cannot be allowed to overrule the orderly administration of justice, for otherwise there would be continued delays and many proper verdicts set aside. The importance of avoiding another trial if the first trial was fair is of paramount importance. Don't waste the court's time. These things are hard. <laughs> yeah. And then again, even assuming arguendo, Ms. Hurd's latest thesis that a son served instead of his father, there would be no prejudice. <clears throat> as Juror 15 was qualified to serve as a juror in Fairfax County and was vetted during voir dire by the court and the party's counsel, just as all of the other jurors were. Such I'm sold. Such I'm totally sold. Even assuming it was the wrong person, I'm totally sold. Yep, I'm fine. Such speculative arguments unfounded in law. Uh-oh. And without factual basis. Ooh, are unfounded in law. Those are, that's another real bird. Oof. Yeah, you finish. I feel that one in here. You finish as you began with frivolity uh, and without factual basis are improper at the post-trial motion stage. At this point, after a six-week trial was held, wasn't that a long time, Your Honor? Oh, Lord. Whew. The court should exercise its discretion and reject Ms. Hurd's belated, speculative, and clearly pretextual arguments regarding Juror 15. You want to talk about signal words? She's a liar, Your Honor. <laughs> That's what it says. Does it not? <laughs> Not, not saying you're wrong, Rick. Not saying you're wrong. <laughs> She's a liar. They have made this thing up. They don't even think there's injustice here. They are searching. They are scratching. They are clawing. They're definitely doing those things. That's purchase. that's undeniable. So yeah, that's that's how they respond in their full motion. Uh, they have a little bit more anger here. We'll, we'll look at the supplemental here. And, and yes, this is the other thing I like about practice. You probably know this even more than me, Kurt. Is you write the orders for the judge. We don't want we don't want any friction. For the judge at all, if you believe, if you side with us, we just, we, yeah. all you have to do, you just date yeah, it's, it, you it's, just sign it. It's a great thing. It's just, as your honor, it's so easy. All you have to do is sign this page. It's just, it's right here. Easiest thing so in the world. For you. Also, we'll write the objection for our, for our opposing counsel. It's all ready. <laughs> they just have to sign it up. Um, no worries, anybody. Here's, believe we'll a due process. We're, it's all set. It's all, it handles itself. Just put your name right on that line and it's done. Uh, so, so I always like that, and and you you see this in motion practice, and that's it's totally normal. You want to make the oh, friction yeah. as low as possible, um, but um, it is it is funny to me. So yeah, I think that that is it's good not something that Kurt, happens all the time, but it's not uncommon either. So yeah, uh, well, and 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 Kurt said it. I think he was already sold. We then get kind of the even more angry, slightly snarky uh, version of their supplemental response to the supplemental memo. So if you remember, I know it's been a long time at this point. We went through their overall memo. A week later, they say, we have more. 
I don't we think have I have more. this one. We have you have our send, investigation. You have to send these both to me. Make sure I've got both of these things because I need oh, to comment on too at some point. You, there Thanks. are links right there. You can use them all. Wow, that's um, just so convenient. Yeah, yeah. That's I, I like to link for sources because I always love people reading long or otherwise. I primary sources. Don't don't believe Hogue. Read for yourself. Absolutely. Um, this is where they do the investigation, and it comes a week later. And here's where we find out about you know the the deadlines that and that's procedural which if it were a big, important argument that really had something to it, meat on its bones, procedure isn't necessarily going to win you the day. Um, because if it's important enough for justice, um, it, it's important. But we do know a couple of things about Judge A. Procedure is very important to her. Uh, and she's very keen on <clears throat> holding to time constraints, holding to deadlines, that kind of thing. So the very first thing they argue, which is a strong argument, particularly to this judge, is pursuant to the court's direction, Ms. Hurd's deadline for submitting her post-trial motions fell on July 1st. One full month after the jury rendered its verdicts. Why does that exist here? They're saying they had plenty of time to write this thing. This looks like a lot of paperwork. It's 40 pages. It is. It's research. But in realistic terms, it's three days of like drafting and pulling, pulling something together uh, and then polishing and making sure you get all the strategy, strategic arguments in there. If you really are, yeah, if you're really spending all your time on it, sure, you could do it in three days. But regardless, a month is a month. Um, and any any law firm can put that together in a month. Yeah. Um, it is undisputed that Ms. Hurd did not file her supplemental memorandum until the afternoon of July 8th, one week late, and only fewer than three days before plaintiff Depp's deadline for is submitting. Is she a week late on time on top of everything else? The supplemental was. Unbelievable. Yeah. Wow. So, so the well, first there's a, there's a reason to just completely ignore everything. It was a week late. Oh, yeah, no. As a judge at this point, screw you. Yeah, so they get their motion in on, on time. They get it in uh, at uh, clearly clearly a little close because they're in the they're in the mid afternoon of of July first. So it's like this one this one was coming in a little hot, um, and then they say, oh, but there's more, and that is on that is on the eighth when apparently their deadline was cob uh, July one. Um, Forget and that this noise. Doesn't, this doesn't do a ton, but what we'll see from the Dep team's argument is it's late, and you should just not count it entirely. Right. Oh, yeah. Because, well, I'm, 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 I'm there. I'm sold. Well, they I'm also, totally they also notion, you know, notions of unfairness and, and inequity here by saying fewer than three days before we have to respond, right? You're supplementing one of your major arguments and we are, we're on a three day timer and that's unfair to us. Uh, nevertheless, of course, we're filing this cause we're good, <laughs> but, but, but we but were rushed. Like, so we were rushed. Yeah. True to yeah. form. So you get a lot of this. Ben Chu loves this. In a moment of candor, uh, true to form, all these things, defendant neither notified plaintiff of her forthcoming supplemental memorandum nor sought leave of the court for filing it one full week at a time. Because Ms. Heard filed late and without leave, the court should grant plaintiff's motion to strike. Kill the whole document, Your Honor. But if you don't, let's talk about substance. In her supplemental memorandum, Ms. Heard does not, because she cannot, make any proffer as to why she could not have discovered the new facts until now. It's voter registration rolls. Like, that's what she delivered. This is because the clerk's office provided the pre-panel jury list to the parties back on April 6, 2022, more than two months ago, and five days before the jury was impaneled. In a rare moment of candor, oh, you used it twice. Come on, Ben. You used it twice. $1,000 an hour, you can give us different phrases. Ms. Hurd admits that she was aware of the purported discrepancy in Juror 15's birth year from the very start of the trial. This is what people are using online because Juror 15 was clearly born later than 1945. So that that's what they said in their motion. It's not, it's not, uh, it's, to, to me, it's clear. not just Maybe not strong it's cream. Yeah. 
Ms. Heard therefore concedes she had more than enough time before the trial started and during the six-week trial when at least two alternates were available. Hey, we could have put alternates in here, Your Honor, to investigate and discover the alleged new facts. Clearly, Ms. Heard waived any right to alleged new facts she chose not to investigate for so long, much less to demand the extraordinary remedy of a mistrial. So this adds the alternate concept. I find that to be very useful as well, which is you've got two extra people sitting here. You could have dismissed this juror and not killed the trial okay? because they're not supposed to be talking about it at all for that six, mm -hmm. seven weeks, right? Mm -hmm. So if they're not talking about it, no harm, no foul. That guy didn't exactly have so. the, the right Exactly birthday. so. We could have dismissed this juror right up to the very last minute and it would have been without any prejudice because the juror didn't participate in any discussions and no harm, no foul. Everyone's happy. So they drops it in there, but I find it to be, I find it to be a good argument. Ms. Heard cites no unfair prejudice, even if Ms. Heard had filed her supplemental memorandum in a timely manner, which she did not. Reminder, Your Honor, we covered that above. And even had she not waived her right to raise this alleged issue by sitting on the information for more than two months, <laughs> which she did, the court should still grant plaintiff's motion to strike defendant's supplemental memorandum because Ms. Heard failed to cite any unfair prejudice. Even assuming arguendo Ms. Heard's latest thesis that his son served instead of his father, there would be no prejudice as juror 15 was qualified to serve in Fairfax County. So we get this essentially as a response taken out from their section eight response in their motion and otherwise placed here with the addition. Why of file it as a supplemental? Because like, I, what, what's supplemental about it? Didn't I, I just already hear this? I think they just wanted, they wanted to ask for the supplemental to be kicked out. Um, right. And then technically oh, okay. that's not Fine. in their baseline motion. So okay, that's their fine, big ass. Fair, fine. And then they say substance, just go back, refer to our motion. And also, hey, alternate jurors are a thing, which didn't make it into their main document. I don't think. I, I, don't, I don't recall that in their main document. But um, we did read a lot today. Uh, so, you know, who knows? Uh, but I think that's that's their supplemental. I also think they like matching their supplemental with the supplemental. Um, and then I think they like showing off because they filed two separate documents within like 10 minutes of each other. <laughs> Again, here, you know, this document isn't coming in hot necessarily, or this one, the eight, oh, one minute of the each other. 10 minute thing is a little bit odd. Well, one minute of each other, actually. Oh, and the I supplemental see. is filed first. Odd. So they filed them together. They walked up to the office and filed them together. It's 820 and 821. Um, so they, they filed them together. But again, this is, they knew the date. They Their date was July 11th. It's filed as soon as the court opens, basically. Um, and that's, that is at least, Compared to a we 243 get to the courthouse on time, we know where it's located. Yeah. <laughs> well, a 243 filing is like, oh, okay, you guys needed the morning. All right, cool. <laughs> um, but in any event, those are the state of play for the motion hearings. The judge has them in front of her now, um, and I think might call a hearing. I don't know, Kurt. Do you think she'll call a hearing on this? I don't know. I think I think there's very decent odds that Judge A is so just completely done. She yeah. does this in one sentence and just sends sends the the signs the piece of paper do you think it matters at all that it is being covered everywhere that 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 is more to judge a doesn't matter uh um, really well yeah do you think she's just do you think she's following that at all in terms of presentation of justice from her courthouse no i'm kind of with i, I i'm kind of with her at this point of like i can't even be bothered to care anymore you people <laughs> i can't even be bothered to care anymore i've moved on to other things in my life you should too yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. I, she seemed over it by at least the last couple of weeks. Um, so I, I still can't believe that she let this trial go on as long as it is. I still can't believe it was a six-week trial. This still seems certifiably insane. I and, forgot and about this footnote, Kurt. Hang on. Oh, I'm ben sorry. There's Chew, a footnote. Okay. Ben Chu at maximum snark. I, I completely forgot. Thank you, chat. You saved the stream. So <laughs> big, big thanks to Mia Minna. Mia Mina, probably. I, I apologize for all pronunciations. Let's put you on screen here. Read the footnote. I did 
mean to remember to read this. Here we go. Defendant seems to have abandoned her prior baseless assertions made both by Ms. Heard and her counsel, where? On national television, that the jurors violated their oaths by watching social media during the trial, which in turn influenced their verdicts. So that's the first sentence here. He's going to admonish in the next sentence, but understand, right? They went out on national TV and questioned the entirety of the Fairfax County judicial process and the jurors and implied that they must have been compromised. And then in 40 plus pages, didn't mention it at all. This is, this is, this is fair pool. I'm not, a hundred percent sure if I would write this footnote or not. I have to think about it, but yeah. No, it doesn't do anything, and it could offend the judge because it's it's not it's not she doesn't have to do anything with this. But no, because to... you're you're bringing attention to an issue they didn't raise, and yep. I don't know that could blow back. Yep. I don't know. I'd have to consider that one. I'm not saying they're wrong. I just have to think about it. But it might be when it gets overly uh, overly high and mighty here. Disgraceful that Ms. Heard made such scandalous allegations and disappointing <laughs> that no apology and recantation followed. She's not you very good with the apology the and recantation. I, I, that's, yeah. <laughs> it also, by the way, is it too late for us to file a, a post-judgment uh, motion for her to shut the hell up? Can we get that injunction now? Man, I, you know, I, it's interesting. You know, they, they, have not, um, they have not pursued any kind no. of... No. Um, injunction on any of this stuff, which is clearly very, very similarly defamatory in various of the venues that she's been on. Um, so it's uh, they don't they don't want to be the ones that are you know you hold the pictures up with the duct tape over the mouths. They won their verdict. They people know according to you know the the, the depth team, and so they, it doesn't look like they're going to pursue an injunction. But yes, yeah. thank you so much for reminding me of this footnote. This is actually when I first read this, what where I went whoa. <laughs> So I apologize for missing it the first time around. You saved the stream, as I said. Um, and yeah, this is this is big stuff. And you're right, Kurt. It's essentially just swinging a sword at nothing because they didn't raise it. But I do like, at least for the PR purposes, for virtual legality purposes, that it is brought up because, yeah, that was one of their main lines of attack. And they either knew- It was a stupid it, line of attack because it it's a purely speculative line of attack. Yes. Yeah. No, they would, and they would have had to- they would have had to say essentially that it must be the case because it was online so much and we don't trust the jurors, even though, as Depp's team rightly pointed out, there's all sorts of precedent. He said, we assume jurors follow their instructions given by the court. Which, um, which, if if true, if that argument is true, implies what? That the, the judge must have been wrong in the first instance not to sequester the jury completely, I guess? Because if it's true that it was completely unavoidable, then the error must have been made by allowing the jury to go home at night because it was completely unavoidable. That's the only way you could read their initial arguments to those various things is that the court had to have sequestered them or else they were failing in their justice. Did anyone make a motion to sequester the jury? I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think so either. And anybody motions to sequester is going to be not terribly well thought of by the jurors. No. (laughs) And and in a civil case? In a civil case. I'm trying to, it's like, I'm I'm sure. For Hollywood celebrities. For Hollywood celebrities that descended upon our fair town. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Sequestered the jury for two months. <laughs> well, to, to be fair, Fairfax is uh, not quite a uh, backwater. It is one of the richest counties in the I didn't the suggest nation. it was a it was Na- backwater neighboring, neighboring Loudoun County is actually the richest county in the United States. I is think Fairfax right? is fifth richest county in the United States. So uh, they can put they can put a shame to Beverly Hills. These, yeah, there's, these, these there's counties, these counties got money. some money. Fair amount of that DC money rolling around. 
Yeah, a lot of a lot of contractors for the government, exactly. especially. Yeah, there's a reason that there's because I, I used to live in Fairfax for many many years and travel through Loudon many many times because there's some great wineries in Loudon. Um, but there's a reason the there's a Porsche and a Lambo and a Ferrari dealership and everything else, right? Well, you need so, to yeah. you need to get your exotic cars definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Kurt, do you know the answer to this question? Do you know how long they have to file an appeal? I believe it was thirty days from the date of final judgment, which is coming up rapidly. Uh, well, final. Is final judgment after the post-trial motion? The date, the date of the judgment, which was twenty fourth, the twenty fourth. Yeah, there you go. So they have until July twenty four. Mm-hmm. Okay. So well, whatever that still still time. I never slide my days around uh, properly for thirty days and non, you know, months. No problem. Um, okay, which can so, be extended by the trial judge, but they do have to ask and uh, meow. Yeah. Okay. Now, again, justice is paramount here, folks, is that you, the, the court is always going to be amenable to, you know, it's complicated and we need more time as long as you follow the right procedures. And as as Depp's team said here, they didn't even ask for leave to file the supplement, which is funny. Um, and the supplement, as I said, didn't do anything for them. It was like, this is your argument. You didn't really improve it uh, with yeah. this thing. Uh, so, none, of these right. none of these arguments are winnable at the trial stage. Their, their only arguments that they have are winnable on appeal if Virginia wants to change the law because apparently Virginia's never spoken to this precise question and apparently other states have spoken to this precise question and other states have gone the other way. But as I've pointed out, and I'll mention again, this is a matter purely of Virginia law. So all the other states in the world going the other way is technically, ultimately irrelevant. It's just what does Virginia want to do? Yeah. And uh, yeah. yeah. And also and the Virginia Supreme Court doesn't have to hear this case. So... Uh, yeah. When you get to non-mandatory appeals, the sky's the limit. Yeah. The court can do whatever it wants. Um, so it's 24th of July. So if you yeah. didn't realize, we get the verdict on June 1st. The official court order sanctifying the verdict was given on June 24th. Right. And then Kurt just said that he thinks it's a 30-day timer from that official order on the 24th. So it goes roughly to the 24th of the next month. And again, right. there can be sliding movement for holidays and things like that. But it's it's roughly late July. Um, Correct. All right. So we do have a couple of super chats here and then we can send everybody on their work day. I know that's what everybody wants to do uh, after Hangouts and Headlines. Doc McFuzzball, read the vid on Elon and Twitter. That's what we did in this space recently. You broke it down for 50 minutes without a single edit. It's true. Not only does that speak to the caliber of your mind, but shows how exciting it is to be passionate about law. Thank you for being an inspiration. Well, thank you for being so nice this morning and for all the kind words. Yeah, it, it Ideally, when we're humming in virtual legality, um, I can get stuff up faster because we don't generally have to edit. But, you know, sometimes there's a lot of coughing and things I don't find that uh, you'd enjoy in those episodes we edit. Nor the, or otherwise, sometimes they say stupid things. I'm human just like anybody else, and they have to be uh, cleared. But the, the You're Elon God video among men. <laughs> That's very nice of you to say, Kurt. The Elon video we did do in one fell swoop, so I appreciate it. That's very nice. Thank you so much. Uh, Tails DM, hey, Hogue, the docs are being uploaded again to the Fairfax site if you want copies without the terrible scan job or Dateline watermark. Ooh. Oh, that's good to know uh, because Dateline, uh, Deadline, Deadline has been very good about putting up the source material, so I want to respect the people that do that rather than just explain it to me. I hate that. Thank you, CNN. Um, no, but I think I, 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 one of the things I secretly want is like in, in every case, I want a law that requires every article that's about a case to at least give the official citation to the case at some point in the article. It can be like the last line or whatever so that I don't have to go figure out where it is. Can I it have is. that as a law? Is that okay or does that offend the First Amendment? You must, in the yeah, article, the First at Amendment. some point, you, you, you must give me the citation. Forced, compelled speech, my God, Kurt. Uh, no, so I agree with you. And it's worse when 
the citation or the parties aren't exactly the names that you would look up from them yeah. on like a casual basis. It's like, it's hell. <laughs> so no, I respect any outlet, regardless of political persuasion, rhetorical talent or otherwise, if you give me the primary source material, you already get like three free points in my book because I can go check my facts and then talk about what you just wrote separately. So more power to you, Deadline. Thank you so much. But it's good to know that they're putting that herd stuff back up on the Fairfax website because they weren't for a long time. And Doc McFuzzball to Rob, Law and Lumber, since he's here. He's getting messages to him now oh, yeah. without even appearing on the channel. This is ridiculous, Rob. Ridiculous. You're the one getting the super chat. Oh, good point, Kurt. I'll take it. Send all the messages you want to Rob. It's inspiring to watch your passion and dedication to family law and how much empathy you have. The world needs advocates like you. I love Rob. Thank you for the nice message to Rob. Rob is a very sweet guy. He's incredibly sweet. Rob is a very sweet person. Lindsay Metcalf finally managed to wake up in time to catch at least part of headlines and hangouts. Good morning from Seattle. Happy face emoji. Yeah, especially when we run long here. Going to go into the 10 o'clock hour, <clears throat> which I hope I don't have a 10 o'clock appointment. I should have looked at that before I started. Uncle Brat, this stream has been hilarious. I have found JD's team has made an excellent counter motion. Yeah, JD's team did a good job. They had some softballs there, <laughs> but uh, they definitely did a good job. Thank you so much for the very generous super chat, Uncle Brad. I really, really appreciate it. Help keep the lights on. And I really appreciate the support for the channel. Lucky, thank you so much for the super sticker or just super chat that is blank. Apologies if you left it blank. If you, you want to leave a message, I can look in the chat for it. Uh, but I thank you so much. Britt Cormier, in a rare moment of candor. The second one should be changed to in a rare moment of, of truthfulness by Ms. Heard. I don't mind rare moment of candor. It's it's I know it's I like funny, it. It's, 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 it's good. But and, and they're not necessarily gonna be reading it like we just did, where they're 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 self-evidently the same uh Voices. in both sections, but it doesn't matter. He's not writing for um, you know, having to use a different name and different phrase every time, like you might read a, a review of the latest Stranger Things episode. He's he's writing for legal purpose and he wants to highlight the fact that uh Team Herd maybe doesn't tell the truth. As often in, as in an unintentional, in an unintentional self own, write that. How about that? That'd be good. <laughs> you know, some some lawyers do write, and they try to do like internet or 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 like chill parlance. I hate it. I hate it to death. <laughs> Carol, Mott well, there, there is generally a, a conceit that we should, as a legal profession, move to uh, you know write in more common vernacular. So maybe move maybe moving to elite speak is just the way that the whole legal profession should be moved. God, I was reading one of them and they used like throw shade. And I was like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, Carol Motzinger, maybe Ben expected. Is it too to early to do motions by TikTok? Is that <laughs> too early in the day? Our, our glorious future. You have 60 seconds. Go. Uh, actually, it would not be the worst thing I've ever heard of. If it, yeah, actually, you know, 60 seconds go would be. Uh... Might be a but benefit to the legal. It's profession. funny when I first got on Twitter, especially when it was 140 characters, I found it to be enormously like sharpening of, of, of like, like, what do I actually have to say here um, right. in order to communicate my idea? And that was an interesting thing to have to go through. Um, and 280, you know, I can get most of what I want in 280, but it's still, oh, how do I rephrase this? Oh, I actually, I don't need to say that. That's redundant, that kind of thing. It's, it's good. It's useful practice. Um, maybe Ben expected a redaction because the judge had said something to Elaine about it, but it was not public. A redaction. A redaction of what? I don't think I understand what you mean, uh, but maybe you can clarify. I will try to keep my eye on the chat. Uh, for oh, you, Carol. Okay. okay. Um, all right. I, I, I think I understand. Okay. Um, there was, because uh, Elaine Bredoff had uh, made her morning rounds thing, and then she had canceled a 
meeting or canceled a interview rather because she at least what she said was she had been called into court on some sort of emergency basis oh, recanting right? an apology and recanting okay. right so there there had been an idea that perhaps elaine had been called in into chambers to be chided uh, by the judge so um that's what they're talking about ben, ben expected something to happen because which would explain the, the a little bit more if he has special knowledge of how judge a felt about this particular set of circumstances mm -hmm. it might just be a reminder footnote uh, I, I mean I, I don't i'm not even sure that i think that the meeting in the court chambers actually happened i i thought maybe it was that elaine just realized that she was coming off the fool and just made an excuse so that she didn't have to continue doing the interviews but who knows? Yeah, no, it's it's raw speculation here, folks. But again, I think the footnote, I tend to agree with Kurt that it probably goes too far, especially when you get to the disgraceful language. It just sounds like Joe Buck talking about Randy Moss. Good luck on that reference, everybody. Uh, but um, yes, I if he did have special knowledge that this was a particular area of sensitivity, it could explain that. You do try to get the sensitive buttons if you know about them uh, in those kinds of documents. So thank you. I, I apologize for not getting it. Thank you, Kurt, for, for saving me on that one. Law and Lumber, I want to hear the most sarcastic order you think Judge A could write in response. Let's hear it, guys. I mean, I think the most sarcastic order is, uh, no. Signed, Judge A. <laughs> um, but, I, I mean, I, I think, honestly, more than sarcasm, if I were if I were team herd, I'd be worried about, like, crippling laser beam eyes of wasting the court's time and imputing the citizens of Virginia and, like, all of that stuff. Um, here's more, here's more, here's more here's, here's a sarcastic order I would write. Sure. It says, um, I would say, um, imagine me granting a decision in your favor. Now imagine a circle around that judgment. Now imagine a line through the circle. <laughs> Have you seen Ghostbusters Council? Do you understand how that logo works? Put your argument in that. Uh, yes. Uh, no, it's, uh, yeah, I... Honestly, I mean, I think Judge A could just sign the freaking DEP uh, order and be like, no, none of this. Um, but uh, yeah, so thanks, Rob. Um, yeah, I, I would, I would a, love a, to see a, a YouTube clip, a YouTube clip of where Cartman is going. No, 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 yes. no, no, no. It's, just it's cite that first, as a footnote. Yeah. Yes, cite this YouTube link. Yes, there you go. It's the first linked answer to the uh, uh, to the opposing counsel uh -huh. here. But yeah, yeah, I think, oh, no, motion denied. Uh, is, is about as sarcastic as you could possibly come across here. But I do think there's a chance that she actually goes ham on them. Um, so, we'll Oh, see. yeah. I mean, there's definitely a chance that she calls these people in and demands accountability, especially because, as I point out, Elaine has doxed her when it was Elaine's side that called for these names to be secret and you and you just doxed them. I think there's a decent possibility that they call them in and, uh, you know, smack around everyone in sight. Although I think odds, my odds on favorite are still I'm done and can't be bothered at this point and uh, go away. Yeah. Don't relitigate the case. Good luck on appeals. See you later. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> law and lumber again, you know, Rob, you can just come on the stream. You don't have to pay me super chats, but I love you. Thank you so much. What if the trial was limited to TikTok arguments and questions back and forth, 60 second clips with background music stepped on a B in real time. Love Honestly. It. Our robotic AI-driven future might just well be uh, video clip uh, legal arguments. We don't know. We don't know what that looks like. I think the ends of justice might otherwise suffer in this world, uh, but I think it's past my lifespan. So we'll, we'll we'll let it be for we'll let it be for the future, the children that are our future. Mm. You have any thoughts on TikTok by uh, trial by TikTok? Kurt? 
I I, I don't know. I, there there is some merit to to potentially this. Uh, it's it's like it's like meetings in business. The the amount of stuff will consume the amount of time. So it's like if we have a 15 minute meeting, the meeting will last 15 minutes. If we have two hour meeting, the meeting will last two hours because it will it will tend to consume the time. So I, I still think it was in, in retrospect an error for this case to go on for six weeks. Of course, the amount of witnesses we had consumed the time because you gave the time. I, I think this trial would have been better in every possible sense for being shorter. Uh, who was it? Mark Twain. If I had, had, if I had, had more time, I wouldn't have written a shorter letter. It's because mm -hmm. it's like, you know, to get it down to something that resembles it. So, yeah, it's it was already too long. It's the same as I was just saying with Twitter uh, in kind of the exactly so wrong. Yeah. you have to you have to sharpen your iron if you have four weeks or three weeks. Um, and God knows there was a lot of redundant witnesses. So, two yes. weeks. Um, let's see here. Video game. You can, week, you can have week each. That's five days. I'll even give you five day weeks. You have five days each counselor to make your cases go. Well, you saw how well it went when Team Herd was down to like three hours, uh, uh, you know, and they're, they're, the objections were timely. Uh, they were exactly they're much better point. under pressure, which is not which is not a which is not a typical a art from adversity. Another concept. Yeah. There you go. Pete Shoemaker, Hogue, for a first timer, do you recommend playing the HD version of Urquan Masters oh. or the non HD version? So, Star Control Two, my favorite game of all time has a source code available, completely non-piracy legal version released by the creators of the game that is online in an archive called the Urquan Masters. There's a number of ways that you can play it. I recommend playing it with the HD version and the 3DO voiceovers and uh, cinemas. Um, I, have a game, I have a gaming question, Rich. Oh, yes, question. Kurt. Uh, but, but hold on one second. Let me just continue to espouse the virtues of Star Control 2. If you're at all interested in open world game design in the early 1990s before everything was open world and in fantastic creatures and a wonderful kind of exploration, Star Trek-esque comedy adventure plot line, Star Control 2, the Urquan Masters, check it out. Runs on computers right now. Not overly long. I play it once a year or so. Still fantastic. Still holds up. Highest recommendation from me. Now, what is your video game question, Kurt? Oh, oh I'm so excited because I've been wondering to ask you this question for a while. Okay. Can you define what a roguelite is? What a roguelike is. Roguelike or roguelite? Roguelike. We'll start with what a roguelike is. What is a roguelike? Can you define that? Okay, so roguelike is uh, traditionally a procedurally generated game uh, that mostly takes a form of either an RPG or an action adventure in which your death is assumed uh, and that your primary goals in uh, proceeding through that game is your own personal experience understanding of the systems at play. So you would get so far and only be able to get 10 minutes in, but now you know that the slime poisons you and you should really come in with the medallion of slime prevention. Um, and now you can go with that information, not with any beneficial standing from when you start, but with that information and then go and proceed and hopefully get a little bit further. They are known primarily for their ridiculous level of difficulty and somewhat Byzantine uh, knowledge base required to advance in at, at any level. That's a roguelike. That is not the preferred form of rogue at this point in 2022. No, no. So I, I think is that is that sufficient? <laughs> no, I'm 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 happy because it's just like because I think there's like what is a rogue? Well, what is a rogue? It's easy because it's just rogue. It's just the game. Uh, what is a rogue like? And what is a rogue rogue light is interesting. And then you get in debates like is Binding of Isaac a rogue like or rogue light? Is it's a light. Uh, Spelunky rogue like or light rogue light? I, so I'm pretty hard and I'm you know I'm a purist on rogue here. So in essence, the difference between like and light, folks, uh, before we go too down the rabbit hole, is that a light 
version of Rogue, which is the predominant version of the genre now, allows for meta progression, right? So what I just described to you might sound like the worst thing ever. If it's just a ridiculously hard game and you always start at moment one. Now, mm -hmm. if you look at games that are super popular, like for instance, this year, going to be on Game of the Year award list, Rogue Legacy 2, essentially combines that notion of a rogue game where you proceed through whatever and it's very difficult with, oh, when I finish a run, I have a certain amount of gold and now I can build something in my town that makes the next run potentially easier. Now, the best ones combine just kind of raw power upgrades with just kind of a flat ability to have options, which Rogue Legacy 2 does and allows you to proceed with, in that case, you can be a chef and uh, see if you can throw pizzas at people uh, and make that work better for you and your strategies for this particular boss. But it allows you to progress without having succeeded in its entirety. And Rogue Likes are everywhere and they're fantastic. Mm -hmm. And you can make it out of an adventure. You can make it out of a card game. You can make it out of whatever you want. Rogue, uh, Rogue Likes are really specifically that kind of adventure setup from the original Rogue, which is, it, it's not just people being- Every like, time you really, start, you start at ground zero. Yeah, and it's not really people being like real Dungeons and Dragons fans or anything like that. Rogue was the name of the game. Yeah, Rogue was Rogue was the name of the game. That's why, yeah, the name yeah. of the, the titular one. And also on gaming news, uh, I think Assassin's Creed Black Flag was one of the best games ever. And so I am hopefully excited for Skull and Bones coming out this November. I'm hoping it's everything I ever want to be with the sea shanties. We'll find out. It's a freaking Frankenstein monster of a design. I can tell you that. I am super intrigued by that game. Um, but it, you can tell it's been through the ringer a couple of times um, from different producers and whatnot. Uh, so I appreciate Video Game Corner with Kurt here. Uh, <laughs> Joe Mendoza, how likely is it for Judge A to call for a hearing on this to get Elaine Bredehoff straight? Uh, I, I think there's a chance that she calls a hearing. Ordinarily, she'd just, she'd just dispatch with this. Um, so I don't, I don't know. <laughs> She's going to dispatch with it one way or another. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think there's a chance. I think there's a chance if she wants to make an example of, of this particular situation, if she is more like where Kurt puts her at, which is like, okay, I'm done with the celebrities. Uh, then you'll see, you'll see emotion, which could still could be pretty harsh. Um, uh, one way or the other, certainly team heard put up some stuff that judge a essentially can't agree to. Um, and there's a lot of bad arguments there, but you know, they might, they might find some success with like the implication stuff. I think they will respond and actually look into at least a little bit of the back office documentation on Jura 15. Kurt disagrees. We'll see how it goes. Well, I'm not sure. I strong. I'm not sure. I'm strong. I don't strongly disagree. I just think sure. there's. The, the, I just think the odds on favorite is I'm done and can't be bothered. Kerry Harvey, what about lawyers making their arguments with memes only? Can you imagine that? It's just. It's just like somebody saying this. To, well, to depending another, depending on quote. your interpretation of memes. Um, you can make an argument that law is argument by memes because we're a precedential based system, right? And so we use like we use the wisdom of the past, and basically you distill everything down to a down to a meme, kind of. Because if you're making an argument today about uh, the warnings that you have to give to a suspect, you're just going to say Miranda, which basically has just kind of turned into a meme or maybe a legal meme because, of course, Miranda was Everybody a guy. Miranda was a guy with a case and a whole complexity and a whole situation. And now the whole thing has become distilled into just one word, Miranda. It's become a meme. Law is Miranda meme. Rice, yeah. There well, you go. All you, like memesters, all you memesters, laws for you. Laws just memes. It's memes that go back a thousand years. That's law. Outstanding. I, I think you got a law review article in your future. Hmm. Uh, Law, law is the original meme. Law is law, um, law is laws old OG memes. But in respect of Carrie's question, I think it would be amusing to see them do it with Twitter memes. Um, so you know, I think you could do it. I think you could actually probably make short form videos out of 
uh, summaries of legal cases done only in meme form uh, for, for TikTok or YouTube shorts. I might steal this idea. We'll see. It could work. Could work. How to explain Dobbs only in memes. <laughs> All right. Wow. Eric uh, Clark. Heard is using this as publicity. If this is denied, she will gaslight. If there is no explanation, it allows her to do that with impunity. It would be a mistake to simply dismiss. Uh, so you think there should be a hearing? Um, well, I, so post-trial motions aren't unusual. Um, she continues to do things for publicity, although not the same as the first week after the, the jury uh, verdict. Um, so I don't know. I think a, a, a flat dismissal that is just absolutely nothing doesn't give any credence to basically anything is its own kind of news item. Um, so I think you can make a point with that if you're the judge and the court. But again, remember, the judge and the court, their 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 job isn't necessarily to make a point. Um, but if this offends them, what they're doing with these motions, and I don't know that it rises to that level, then yes, you would see you would see those arguments. I think the closest you get is that the herd team does appear to have thrown the court under the bus for not checking the juror, thrown the juror under the bus for whatever nefarious reasons, and it has a history of throwing both the court and the jury under the bus from those interviews. So it is possible that Judge A would want to get on the record that this is an unacceptable way to behave in her jurisdiction and her courthouse. Mm -hmm. It's possible. Mm -hmm. Joe Mendoza, we also know, if he were to make one, that Rob's judgment, as he eloquently said it, does not wiggle wiggle. And it does not fold, LOL. And I already missed the wall decorations from yesterday. Hey, they were fun, right? But they they're only fun. celebratory decorations if you're only celebrating something. So we'll see what we can put back there again. I love my wall. I know people differ on this, um, but some people love my wall like I love my wall. And so we're going to keep my wall as the my wall, looks, wall. The wall looks good. At least it's a nice color. It's pleasing. It's a lovely red. It's a lovely red. Uh, but no, I appreciate it. Um, th there was some talk about potentially leaving the decorations up a little longer. Uh, but we did talk about it. We wanted to make that day yesterday special. So I appreciate the comment. I think we're done with Super Chats. It's 10.03. I'm sincerely praying that I didn't schedule myself a 10 o'clock appointment this morning. Uh, so we will see how that goes. I had a lovely time with all of you. Kurt, thank you so much uh, for showing up, hanging out. You doing anything on your channel today? Oh, man, I got stories. I'm just trying to check because I, I did like five live streams yesterday and I had more and I just couldn't. I, I ran out of time. Let's see what we got going on today. Elon Musk responding to the Twitter thing. I want to Might respond to this. I want to respond to the story coming out of Texas. A pregnant woman is contesting her HOV high occupancy vehicle ticket by saying her fetus is a person and therefore a passenger. Um, there's a case dealing with a 911 dispatcher who's being charged with uh, manslaughter or something equivalent to it, being charged with involuntary manslaughter for failing to send an ambulance to a home. A 911 okay. dispatcher being charged. So you don't see that every day. And let's see what else I got. And I do want to cover this depth stuff myself. So I've got at least yeah. four stories in my queue that I have to do, plus whatever else has happened in the last 24 hours that I haven't been paying attention to. That is awesome. That is awesome. And because sometimes when you say you might be missing a meeting, people like to send extra super chats. I really am very happy for the support. I appreciate it. Gary says, we need a law battle. Hashtag me Mondays. Happy face, smiling emoji. Could do some memes. We could do some memes on Mondays. We'll see. We've already adopted, Kurt. We're doing casual Fridays here in Hangouts and Headlines. We're going to do something not so serious, uh, as, you know, the Joker might say. Um, so uh, we're going to do some light, lighthearted things, maybe movie reviews, video game stuff, mm. whatever, on those Friday streams. Uh, but Meme Monday is not an awful idea. I love folks. Always have good ideas here. Um, we'll see. Thank you so much uh, for the super chat. Uh, and... Uh, Crazel no, Irish. Don't, no, 
I saw the three if, the first three words. No, no, I saw the first three words. We're not doing this anymore. Uh, what if any is the timeline for responses from Judge A to all the motions? What if any? I said, what if any? Being fo been following since the beginning, haven't seen any responses from the judge. Court gets a lot of discretion <laughs> in, in in answering things. It's her it's her timeline. She is the she is the queen of the courthouse. Um, but I, I suspect it'll be pretty rapid um, uh, from here. So I expect responses soonish, I would say. Uh, but we'll see. It's up to her. Um, and that is it uh, for today's Hangouts and Headlines. Have a great one. Remember, folks, uh, we don't do Hangouts and Headlines on Wednesdays because I found that that's the rhythm that helps me be able to make these episodes. <laughs> so we do four times a week right now, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. So I won't be seeing you tomorrow morning. Still might be a virtual legality episode. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you for dropping in, Kurt. And I will see you on the next episode.